0: Salvador Dali was seated at the dining room table with his wife Gala. The two had just finished eating dinner and for dessert had had various cheeses. They were originally supposed to go to the theater with some friends, but with an onsetting migraine, Salvador decided to stay home. When Gala left, Dali didn't leave the table. He just sat there staring at the melting cheeses, meditating on the philosophic problems that the super soft presented. After a while, his migraine wasn't going away, so he decided to go to bed. His bedtime routine was to take one final look at the painting he was working on. This way his brain could continue to work on it as he slept. He was currently painting a picture that represented a landscape near his home in Port Legat, Spain. He knew that the atmosphere he would created with the image was to serve as a setting for another idea. A surprising image, but he wasn't sure what that image was. As he was about to turn out the light, he saw the solution. Despite his headache, he dashed over to the painting, grabbed his palette and brushes, and furiously painted for the next two hours, completing in time for Gala's return. He was so excited that when she got home, he stopped her and made her close her eyes before guiding her to sit down in front of the painting. Finally, he told her she could open them, and when she did, She saw something she'd never seen before. Three melting clocks. Always seeking her validation, Dolly asked if she'd remember this image in three years. Her response would foreshadow the fact that this image, the persistence of memory, would go on to become his most famous painting. No one can forget it once he has seen it. There are no breaks in this business. You make your breaks. The reason I'm in this room right now is because my music's very dope. Let's try to find something that people remember 20 years later. If you just truly love cinema with enough passion, then you can't help but make a good movie. Break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. Welcome to Artwell. This is a show dedicated to understanding what it means to do art well. We do that by studying the greatest artists in history. And this season, for season one, we are profiling Salvador Dali. And Dali is one of the most famous painters of the 1900s. You might recognize him for his wiry, upturned mustache, or even his most famous painting, The Persistence of Memory, which is known for its three melting clocks. In preparation for this season, I read over 1,300 pages on Dali. I read The Shameful Life of Salvador Dali by Ian Gibson. I read Dali, part of the World of Arts series by Donna Dez. And I also read The Dali Legacy by Jean-Pierre Isbouts and Dr. Christopher Heath Brown. If after listening to this, you want to go deeper into the life of Salvador Dali, I'll make sure all three of these books are linked in the show notes. And with these links, they will be affiliate links. So if you purchase through them, the show will receive a small kickback. So if you want to find a way to support the show, that is a great way how. And a couple things before we get into today's podcast, the first one being the structure of what this show and these types of episodes are going to look like. This is the second time that I've recorded this podcast. And the reason for that is because the first time I recorded it, I had this detailed outline and I was trying to take you through the full life of Salvador Dali and hit on all the points and find lessons through his life story, but it became overly scripted. You know, it became too beholden to the outline because it was too detailed and too specific and it felt a little stiff to me and so i decided i was going to re-record it and focus purely on the lessons and in, and also to combat this the fact that it felt stiff i was going to do this in one take so with that in mind i might stumble over my words i might get too excited i might talk really loud i might talk really quiet this isn't going to be done in one take i might film a couple pickups after the fact if like things are really if that's really necessary but I want to do this in one take and just share with you everything that I learned that I'm excited about. And the second thing is that this season of the podcast is brought to you by the Artwell newsletter. And the Artwell newsletter is obviously my newsletter. And on that newsletter, you can expect three things. One, I will share with you my favorite quotes from the books I read in preparation for each and every season. Two, you will get excerpts from the interviews we do for this podcast. So after this episode, I have three Dolly expert interviews upcoming on this show. I have one with the son of one of Dali's closest friends, who is now one of the leading Salvador Dali experts on the planet. I have an interview with the only director to ever have completed a film with Salvador Dali. And three, I have an interview with one of the authors from the books that I read for this season. So you'll get the full interviews here on the podcast, but you'll also get excerpts around specific key points to your inbox if you subscribe to the newsletter. And three, the third thing you can expect is essays from me going deeper on a specific lesson we learned from each and every season. So for this upcoming Salvador Dali season, I'm debating between doing an essay around art and commercialism or around crazy versus genius. So if you want access to any of those things, make sure you subscribe to the Art World Newsletter in the show notes. And so now, though further ado, let's get into the life and lessons of Salvador Dali. The only difference between one crazy man and Dali... Is very simple. Dali is not crazy at all. Hard work. Dali obviously was a gifted painter. He was born with a natural talent for painting. His first painting was done at like six years old. And when you think about the fact that he actually did it when he was six, this was done by a six-year-old, it is really impressive because you realize you probably couldn't even do that today. So he had this natural gift, but... He also married this talent with a capacity to work really, really hard. And he did it throughout his life. He'd do it as a child. He would spend hours painting. He did it as a teenager. He did it in his 20s. He did it in his 60s and 70s. Dolly had no issue sitting down in front of the easel for hours at a time and just painting. His routine very often became wake up at 7 a.m. The first thing he sees is his painting because he would put it next to his bed. So it's the first thing he sees, it's the first thing he's thinking about. He would then paint from 7 a.m. until sometime in the early afternoon. He would take a quick nap, he would have a siesta, and then he would go back to work on his painting for hours again until sometime in the evening when he'd finally take a couple hours off. And then before he'd go to bed, he would set his painting up next to his bed so it was the last thing he saw before he went to sleep, so his brain could subconsciously work on this painting while he was sleeping. And then he would wake up in the morning, the first thing he would see would be the painting, the thing that hopefully he'd been thinking about all night while he slept and he would go back to work again. I think that's just a great first lesson to start that no matter how talented you are, hard work will always matter. You know, I think that sometimes we can overthink hard work. It's been become this like polarizing subject with hustle culture where everyone's worried about work life balance, but truthfully, hard work will always be a, differ- a differentiator. And I understand there's a point where there becomes diminishing returns. But I think that we think the diminishing returns happen a lot sooner than they do. And so this isn't me telling you not to take breaks. Take breaks when you need them. But at the end of the day, hard work really does make a difference. And that's something Dolly knew throughout his life that he just did naturally. He just always was painting. How badly do you want it? It's just a question that I often come back to. Dali wanted to be a painter. He had to prove himself early on. His parents did not want him to become a painter. You know, when Dali started to find success, his dad created this scrapbook of newspaper clippings to talk about the, the successes of his son. And in, in this scrapbook, he wrote a foreword to it and he talked about how they didn't want him to become an artist. He wrote that we, his parents, did not wish our son to dedicate himself to art, a calling for which he seems to have shown great aptitude since his childhood. I continue to believe that art should not be a means of earning a livelihood, that it should be solely a relaxation for the spirit to which one may devote oneself when the leisure moments of one's manner of life allow one to do so. Moreover, we, his parents, were convinced of the difficulty of his reaching the preeminent place in art which is achieved only by true heroes conquering all obstacles and reverses. We knew the bitterness, the sorrows, and the despair of those who fail. And it was for these reasons that we did all we could to urge our son to exercise a liberal, scientific, or even literary profession. And let's actually talk about this quote for a minute and what Dolly's father is actually saying. And you know, I think this is something that all artists will experience throughout their journey as artists. We've all been discouraged by people. We've been told to take a safer route, that to do something more practical even me, right? I don't know if I ever actually publicly shared this story, but when I was growing up, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to write movies and direct movies. And I was living in the middle of Canada. I was living for context for anyone in the United States. I was living in Manitoba, which is about three hours away. I was three hours away from Grand Forks, North Dakota. So that's a very similar territory, very similar terrain, very similar lifestyle. And I wanted to be a director. I wanted to get into the film and I had no idea how. I had no idea what I was doing. And then I watched this YouTuber named Philip DeFranco and he talked to the school called Full Sail University. And Full Sail was just this school that I could go to learn filmmaking at. I believe it was in California. And then I looked up how much it was going to cost to go to Full Sail University and I realized instantly I didn't really want to go to Full Sail University. It actually wasn't that important to me what I did find was I kept looking and I found this school called Colorado Film School, which looking at it now, I actually looked at it before this. I'm pretty sure it's just a community college, but I found this school in Colorado because truthfully, I liked the hockey team in Colorado and that's why I was looking for film schools in Colorado. So I found this film school in Colorado and I told my dad, this is where I'm going. I think it was like 15 grand a year. It's like, dad, I'm going to go to Colorado. I want to apply to this school. What my dad told me was hold on, maybe we don't go to Colorado, maybe go to school for marketing, which is what I'd been accepted into, and do the marketing thing, get a job in marketing, and then once you're there, start working on the film thing. Have something to cover your bases and then go into film. Off the rip, that sounds like my dad didn't believe in me, but my dad did. Well, my dad also realized is there was literally no proof that I could do the film thing. I talked about it. I took a film school film class in high school and i made three quote-unquote movies which are horrendous i look at them now and they make me smile because i just it's me and a couple of my buddies but they are so bad and so there was no stack of proof that i could do the film thing you know there was a bigger stack of proof for the business thing i took business all through high school i graduated with a special diploma with like a distinction in business because I took so many business courses in high school. I got accepted into marketing. I did really well in all of my classes for business. there's like this stack of proof that my dad was looking at that I also apparently had this interest in business because I took all these courses in high school and there was a stack of proof that I could do that. And if we looked at the stack of proof for film, there was zero scripts ever written. There was three short films, we'll call them. I'm pretty sure two of them are under five minutes and one of them was like 12. That were really, 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 really bad. And I only did them because I was in a class. I wasn't making films and movies outside of these classes. So there was really no proof that I could do film. And so what my dad was telling to me was pursue this other interest that you appear to have. And then once you kind of are established, then start working on the film thing. Build up the stack of proof. Because I think what all parents are looking for when they tell you not to do the things they are looking for a stack of proof that you know what you're doing, that you can do this thing. Because just to say, I want to be a filmmaker isn't enough. I have to be making movies all the time and putting the work in. And I'm sure if I'd spend my entire high school making movies, writing scripts, directing movies with my friends, my dad probably would have been more inclined to be like, all right, go for this thing. Because clearly you want it. But I didn't do that. And so my dad was saying was just build up the stack of proof first before you really go after the thing. And I think about this advice a lot too, and that might sound like bad advice, right? Where it's like, go all in, pursue your passion fully. And I hear that. And some people need to do that. Some people need to jump out of the plane and build the parachute on the way down. I hear it. But I don't necessarily think that's the advice for everybody. Because I think when you do that, you can put so much pressure on yourself that you're forced to make decisions you don't want to make as an artist, you know, I think I come from a YouTube background, so I think about that a lot in that context where it's like I sometimes caution creators from taking the jump to full time too quickly because when you do that, you now become beholden to money with what you create. So you don't have to do whatever you have to to get brand deals and views so you can make money to cover your rent, and pay your expenses, and, and eat food. Secondly, to you no longer making what it is you want to make, but instead following trends. To make things that you know will do a, that you know will have a higher likelihood of working, so your views can go up, so you can make more money off of ad revenue, so you have more views, so you can sell higher sponsorships, or you're even taking sponsorships from brands you don't believe in or don't want to do deals with because they're the only deals you have that month, and your rent is due. And so I think that sometimes taking the jump too early can actually lead to you navigating it in the wrong way. I think a lot about this essay article written by this guy named Derek Sivers. And I don't really know how to describe Derek. He had a company in the nineties called CD baby, and he ended up selling CD baby, made a bunch of money, and now he lives in New Zealand and he just writes about like art and life and creativity. And I kind of refer to him as like this creative monk. He was also an, uh, he was an artist himself before his company CD baby. But so I look at him as like this creative monk and he has this essay article, whatever you want to call it about the happiest people in like the happiest people that he's met. And there's three groups of people. There's one, there's the people who pursue creativity full-time. Their art is their is their main source of income. He has two, the people who work full-time and have no outlet for creativity. And three, there are people who have a full-time job, but also pursue creativity on the side, but they pursue it seriously. And which of those three people do you think are the happiest? Spoiler alert, it's not the first two, because... Similar to what I just talked about, when you try to make your art your full-time thing, you now become beholden to the money, and you have to then compromise your art to make money. So as soon as you start compromising your art in service of money, you become unhappy because that's not the reason you started making the thing in the first place. Two, if you don't have any creative outlet, you're obviously going to be unhappy. This is a side note here, but I personally think that humans inherently are creative people. There's a quote that I think about often that I am pretty sure I read on Twitter and I've tried to find it, but I'm pretty sure back in like 2011, maybe if give or take a few years. So I can't remember who said this, where this came from. I'm like, again, I'm pretty sure I saw it on Twitter, but the quote was, and I'm really paraphrasing here. I don't have this memorized verbatim, but it was everyone likes to dunk on trust fund babies for trying to become artists. But it's so interesting that in the absence of needing money, people default to becoming creative and something about that. And I read that a long time ago before I even identified as an artist and it's stuck with me ever since. And it's in the back of my mind. Often when I talk to people who are like, yeah, I don't have any, I don't have any passions. I don't have any hobbies. There's nothing I like to do outside of work. I don't know. I just kind of hang out like that to me seems so unfulfilling because I think humans are inherently creative, but I think we also have this like resistance to accepting the fact that we are creative, that we are artists. And so obviously, if you're someone who just has their job and does nothing else, you're likely going to be unhappy. And so that brings us to the third person, which is the person who has a full-time job, but also has a creative passion that they pursue seriously. You know, the example Derek gives, and I can't remember if this is in the article or in an interview, I I listened to him talk about this, but it's like the person who has a full-time job, but they're also in a band that works hard to put out an actual album every single year. They put the time in to write the songs, they put the time in to rent studio space to do this properly. But because it's on the side, they retain complete control. So they are happy. They have something to cover the money, to remove the money stress from the art, and the art can remain pure. And those people are the happiest people. And so when I think about the advice my dad gave me, when I think about it now, that's kind of what he was telling me to do was to find a way to remove money stress and keep the art pure. And whether my dad was actually trying to say that in those terms or if that's me interpreting reinterpreting it now through that through a diff, through this lens is up for debate. But I think that what my dad was ultimately saying was yeah, build the stack of proof well, was one, get your money covered, deal with that thing first so that you could have the freedom to pursue this film thing and then build up the stack of proof once the money is covered where you can just focus on making the things and not have to worry about making money and i want you to know that that is okay you know i think coming back to the youtube example there's like this desire to be full-time as fast as possible and this has obviously been compounded with short-form content going viral so quickly that I don't even think viral is the right word anymore, but going, getting so many views so quickly that people are just able to go from zero to a hundred so fast and then try to take the jump. And like now there's this extra desire to like be a full-time creator. It's like the stamp of honor, this badge of honor. But again, like we talked about, that can lead to you having to navigate things in the wrong way. And every single person that I've interviewed, so I'll, for context, if you have no idea who I am, I've been interviewing for five years. My old show, I guess, were about interviewing creators, digital creators, YouTubers, Instagrammers, TikTokers, and every single person that I interviewed who took a long time to actually get traction and actually do the thing full-time has always said, every single person without fail has said, I'm so glad I didn't go viral and get attention sooner because I wouldn't have known what to do with it. I would have wasted my opportunity. And so there's something to be said for having to fight and earn this thing. And so I think that doing the thing on the side And I say the thing to be whatever your art is, whether it is YouTube, whether it is painting or filmmaking, do the thing on the side and get the experience so that when you can actually take the jump to full time, you have experience to know exactly how you want to build this thing. And because you spent so long building it on the side where you're not beholden to the financial aspect of it, you can build in the exact way you want so that when you take the jump to full time, you can maintain its purity as much as possible. But again, we look at it weirdly as if you're not a full-time creator and I want to be a full-time creator as fast as possible. And I get that. But look at acting. Acting, it is just accepted that you're going to do acting on the side and get as much experience and connections as possible until you can become a full-time actor. But on YouTube, there's this, for some reason, this weird need to have to be full-time yesterday. But an actor will move to LA and spend years waiting tables and doing jobs on the side and doing whatever they can to get into acting until they can actually do it full-time and that's fully accepted and it's so interesting that depending on the creative industry that you look at doing it full-time doing it on the side is accepted in different ways but i just think about the acting thing a lot when it comes to youtube is like very few people move out to la and do nothing but act and say if i don't make it trying to be a full-time actor with nothing else on the go then i'm not going to make it But if an actor moves to LA, waits tables, has a way to pay for their rent and does the acting on the side until the acting can become the supplement for their full-time income, that's totally accepted. But in YouTube, that's not. It's like, I have to move to LA and just go for it. Which totally go for it, but also make sure the financial thing is covered. So there's nothing wrong with doing the art on the side until it becomes evident enough that you can do it full-time. And that's going to require, back to our original point, a lot of hard work. And obviously, Dolly didn't have to do the thing on the side because he was a teenager and he could just do it full time because he didn't have a job or anything like that. But he knew that he had to prove himself. He knew that he had to get a stack of proof that he could do this thing. And he tried to show that through hard work by spending as much time as he possibly could painting. another thing about Dolly's childhood, there's a few things I kind of want to pull out from his upbringing. And one is that is trauma. Because trauma is very evident throughout Dali's work. And there's three key traumatic events that happened to Salvador Dali in his life that manifest themselves in his life and his work. The first one being is Salvador Dali's brother. Salvador Dali had a brother, also named Salvador Dali, who was born before him, passed away, I believe at two years old. 20 months old or something like that. And nine months later, Salvador Dali number two was born. And a lot of people seem to think that Salvador Dali number two was given Salvador Dali number one's name. That's not the case in Spanish and Catalonian tradition at the time, you were supposed to name the oldest son after the father. And so when Salvador Dali number one passed away, Salvador Dali number two became the oldest son. So he got the father's name as well. It wasn't naming after the first brother and you can even see this, I don't have them written down, but their middle names are different as well. So they did not name him the exact same thing. They just gave him the father's name, different middle names. But even knowing that, that's still got to be weird to know that you have your brother's name. You know? And that issue is probably compounded when your parents take you to your brother's grave and tell you you are the reincarnation of your dead brother. Probably not the wisest parenting decision to say to a six-year-old. And so that obviously made an impression on a young Salvador and would continue to be on his mind for the rest of his life. And speaking of bad parenting decisions, Salvador Dali's dad, Dali senior, wanted to deter his young child from having sex. And so what did he decide to do? He decided to put a book of sexually transmitted diseases with highly graphic and detailed images on the family piano till Salvador would see them and be deterred from having sex. Ah, I don't even know what to say on that. That's just crazy. He was like seven years old and there was like a lot of vivid images that he was exposed to. Not great. And the third thing that would ultimately end up happening to Salvador, and this one's, obviously the passing of his brother is tragic, but telling him that he's the reincarnation and the STD book is just crazy. But anyways, The third thing is his mother passed away when he was, I believe, 15 or 16, and he was much closer with his mom than he was with his dad. And to compound this issue, his dad, who just apparently was like really good at making great decisions that would benefit a young person is not only did he remarry, which again is totally healthy and normal. I get that. He remarried his aunt. So Salvador Dali's stepmom was his aunt, his mom's sister. And Salvador obviously did not handle that well, then just compounded the issues of losing his mother. And so these three things, these three traumatic events, and some of them, especially like the STD book was like a prolonged traumatic event. because it wasn't just a one-time thing ended up influencing Salvador Dali's work. And so throughout his life, he would come back to his dead brother. He would come back to sex as a theme in his paintings and death was a theme in his painting. So his brother sex and death were themes in his work. And I was thinking about trauma and art, and I was speaking with a friend of mine, Kubla. Um, well, I actually have an interview with him on this show, so if you want to listen to it. We didn't talk about this specific thing on the interview. We had a great conversation about art and creativity that's almost three hours long, if you want to go listen to that. But I was speaking with Kubla about trauma and art and mental health and art. And he said something really interesting to me. He said that you can use your trauma in your art. There's nothing wrong with that. And I actually agree with him because if you ask me what the creative process is, is processing your abstract thoughts, experiences, and feelings and reflecting them in your work. As so we're talking about that, And he's like, yeah, you can absolutely use your, your struggles, your traumas as fuel. But what you don't want to do is let it become a crutch that you forever lean upon. And therefore you don't work on yourself as a human being because you're worried about how it will influence your art. So the goal isn't to isn't to lean on it forever. It's to it's to channel it, to express it in your work and almost like use that as a way to work on yourself, to try to understand all these thoughts and feelings you have in your work, but don't just use them as your entire source of creative fuel forever. It makes me think of like those comedians who refuse to go to therapy because they're worried it's gonna make them unfunny. Or David Lynch, David Lynch is a director I believe it was a 1997 interview with Charlie Rose where they talked about therapy very briefly where David Lynch said he needed to go to therapy. So he went to therapy and asked the therapist if this could have an impact on his creativity. And the therapist said, there's a chance it could. And David Lynch walked out and never went back to therapy. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think if, especially in David Lynch's case where you feel like, yo, I need to go to therapy, go to therapy. And I think that obviously it will change your creative process. It will change you as an individual. But back to what I said where I think the creative process is you reflecting your thoughts and experiences in your work. You're going to continue to have thoughts and experiences even if you go to therapy. And so what you make might change. But I'm trying to figure out the best way to put this. That doesn't sound rude, where it's like, you don't want, where it's like, are you actually a creative or is this trauma making you creative? Because I think if you're truly an artist, you can make great art in many different circumstances. But how great are you if you feel like you can only make great art in one specific instance? And so you restrict yourself to improving into getting better as a person because you're worried that you're not going to be able to make great art after that. But I think truly great artists, and it's beautiful to try and express all of these different emotions and experiences in your work. You don't want to just pigeonhole yourself into one thing and restrict yourself from getting better as a person for the sake of your art. You know, I spoke with Tom Dreesen, who is a stand-up comedian. He was Frank Sinatra's opening act for 13 years. And he was talking about how so many people think that success with art will make them better. I have all these problems, but once I have money, fame, and attention, they'll go away. What he said to me was, that is actually the inverse of what happens. Money, fame, success compound your issues. They put a magnifying glass on the problems that you have. So it's important for you as an artist now, before you have money, fame, and attention, to work on yourself so as you continue to find success, those issues don't continue to compound. You want to stop those issues Now, you want to work on yourself. You don't want to let these things become your creative source, your creative fuel. Then they will continue to get worse worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as your art becomes more and more successful. And then I understand where as that's happening and as these thoughts are becoming more and more intense, you're still finding success. So it becomes this weird thing where it's like, is this the reason that I'm becoming successful? And it's not. I want you to know it's not. You are funny because you're funny. You are a great storyteller because you're a great storyteller. You're not funny because you're depressed. You're not a great storyteller because you have anxiety. You are a great storyteller because you are a great storyteller. You are a great artist because you are a great artist. So don't be afraid of working on yourself and overcoming your traumas and your hardships because your art will... I don't want to say it won't suffer because I don't want to create a false picture here. I think it will change and it might not be as good as it once was because you're going to have to figure out how to make it as good as it once was as your creativity changes. I think that's just a part of the process. I don't think that you'll not be able to reach the same height ever again. I do believe that. I think it might take a little bit of time. i might be like one step backwards take two steps forward. So at the end of the day to summarize this point when it comes to trauma I think my friend Kubla said it best. Absolutely channel those things in your art. Reflect your thoughts feelings and emotions in your work but don't let them become a crutch. Another thing Salvador Dali did, speaking of his childhood, I guess he didn't do the trauma thing that just kind of happened to him, but something else from Salvador Dali's childhood that was apparent throughout his life and work was the old masters of painting. And Dali wrote this book called 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. And in it, he sort of talks about his creative process and just does some other wild things and says wild things, which he is known to do. But he has this really important quote. And he says that, begin by learning to draw and paint like the old masters. After that, you can do as you like. Everyone will respect you. And so what he's saying there is that just the importance of, of studying the basics. Part of the, the basis for this show was a feeling that not enough people were studying the past of art and media and creativity. You know, everyone's looking left and right. They're looking at what everyone, all their contemporaries are doing, and they're kind of just mirroring that. We're in this place where everyone's copying everyone else who's copying everyone else and everyone's making similar stuff. And I just don't feel like enough people are looking backwards at who's come before them and what has come before them. And I understand there's like this feeling of like, well, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have technology, so what can I actually learn? And you can learn so much. The seed of the show was planted a year and a bit ago when I read a book of Freddie Mercury interviews. And so many of the stuff he was saying was just directly applicable to today. And so it's important for you as an artist to study the classics. And that's what Dolly did. That that's, he was first planned for him in these books called the Gowan's Art Books, which were these like black and white books of famous Renaissance painters. And it would just be their, their paintings in black and white with like a small caption, but that was it. And he would just look at these books for hours. And then in high school he started a magazine with some friends. It just ran for 6 issues, but it was called Studium. And Dali had a Dali's part of this magazine was called The Great Masters, I believe. And it was 6 issues on 6 different great masters. It was like Leonardo da Vinci, Goya, El Greco, Velázquez, and two more that I can't remember off the top of my head. But Dali would forever channel these great masters. You know, he spent time studying them. And he felt that as time went on, Less and less people were studying them because they didn't have an understanding of the foundation of what led, what made great art before they arrived. And he was speaking on pop art in a 1964 interview with Playboy. And I actually want to read you this quote from the magazine. He said, "For me, the most important thing is the classic beauty of Raphael, Velázquez, Goya, and Vermeer. This classical ideal, with its exacting principles of technique, is the most essential thing for a painter to study. But the painter cannot learn it today, and this is a most tragic thing." The best abstract painters today commit suicide because they do not have a classical background. Now, the figure is again returning to art, but for most artists, this is impossible because they have no knowledge of drawing. And so they involve themselves with extra pictorial ideas such as pop art, which is concerned with the common object, the soup can, the comic strips. The actual painting of these objects is less important than the idea of the utilization of these objects. And so what Salvador Dali is saying with this quote And whether you agree with him or not is up to you. But what he's saying about pop art in 1960s is that because these people don't have a baseline, they don't have an understanding of the great art that came before, they don't have an understanding of the quote-unquote rules of great art, their art is now not about their specific ability as an artist. Their art is, I don't know if revered is the right word, but people are paying attention to their art for what is in the art and not actually the art itself. The art is getting attention for the comic book, for the soup can, and not because it's a beautiful image. And so what he's saying here is you have to study the past. You have to learn the rules so that you can know how to break them. Because I think that to innovate as an artist, as an artist you have this desire, this inherent desire to be different, to make something new that no one has ever seen before, to innovate. And in order to innovate correctly... You need to know what the rules are so you know how to break the rules and exactly why you're breaking them. You can't just go breaking the rules with no understanding of what the rules are because you're trying to be different. That's going to be rejected by the public because people inherently are, how do I put this? People don't like change. And so the best way to innovate with art isn't to take 10 steps to the left, it's to take one step to the left. It's to give people something new in a context that they're familiar with. And so what Dolly was saying with these artists is that they were just giving you something you're familiar with and you were latching onto this familiar idea of this soup can of the comic strip. And it wasn't necessarily about the art anymore. And that to him was an issue because it, it to be an artist, you wanted to be about the art. What I encourage you to do, what I'm imploring you to do, is to study the past is to study those who came before, learn their lessons. And a great place to start is just by listening to this podcast, to listening to my mad rantings and ravings about what I've learned studying these arts. This is a great place to start, but I encourage you to go deeper. Don't just listen to this podcast. Find the pockets of history that are interesting to you and study them and learn the lessons and understand the basics of whatever your art form is. Because I think that that is important. Because again, you want to innovate. The best way to innovate is to understand what the rules are so you know how and why to break them. And so I couldn't encourage you more to study history, to study the classics. And I called this season of the podcast, Salvador Dali's myth. And the reason I did that is because Dali did his best to turn his life into a myth. Actually, I'll read you the quote. This is the opening line of the introduction of the shameful life of Salvador Dali, which is the definitive biography on Salvador Dali. He said that Salvador Dali is not a trustworthy source of information about himself. From his adolescence, he set out consciously to become a myth, and he continued to work at being Dali even after he had achieved his goal. And he truly did start from his adolescence. He was very calculated in creating this image and this persona that would get people's attention, that would make people curious, that would—he was just trying to tell a story. And so there's another quote. These next two quotes are also from the biography— Actually, one of them's like a quote of Dali within the biography, but it says, I was studying at the School of Fine Arts in Madrid. The desire constantly, systematically, and at any cost to do just the opposite of what everybody else did pushed me to extravagances that soon became notorious in artistic circles. So Dali was creating this character. He was crafting himself into this persona, this myth that would get him attention that became notorious in artistic circles. And he was doing that by kind of just doing the opposite of what everyone else was doing. He was, you could say, lashing out to get attention almost. But there's a second quote that I think reframes this approach from Dolly. He's not just trying to get attention. I feel like this is glossed over by a lot of people as to what he's actually doing here. Yes, he's trying to turn himself into a myth. And a lot of people go, because it's to get attention, and he's just this weird, crazy guy. And so he's just doing all this weird, crazy shit. But I actually think there's... This, again, this quote here just really reframes it for me. So the quote is He wore a black, wide-brimmed hat, sported an ample flowing necktie, and was in the habit of slinging his overcoat around his shoulder like a cape. As soon as possible, he recalls in his secret life, I wanted to make myself look unusual, to compose a masterpiece with my head. And it's that last line that reframes it for me: To compose a masterpiece with my head. To Dali, He's trying to turn himself into a myth. For me, again, using this last line as the lens I'm looking at this through, he's trying to turn himself into a myth, not just for the sake of it, but because to him, everything he does is a part of his art. Even his appearance to compose a masterpiece with my head, a masterpiece is art. And so for him, everything he does is part of the art, part of what he is making, the story he is telling, his life is a part of the art. And really how I think about that for you is don't try to turn yourself into a myth. But the takeaway here, the story outside of the story matters just as much as the story itself. The story you tell outside of the story is what draws people in. You know, the story outside of the story is your brand. That's what that is. And Dali had this inherent understanding of branding and from a very early age. He was trying to brand himself. He was trying to create not only a masterpiece with his head but with the story he was telling of his life and he was trying to turn his life into a myth because he understood that if he became this mythical figure it would draw more people to his work and so the story you tell outside of your story matters just as much as the story itself and around this time too as Dali's in his early 20s and even in his teens one thing he's doing a lot is experimenting with styles He's trying lots of different art forms. You know, Fauvism, Cubism, Dadaism, Surrealism, Futurism, German Expressionism. He's trying a little bit of everything. There's two kind of thoughts on the fact that he was trying everything before he settled on his style, which is known, I guess, as Surrealism. And there's two thoughts on this. One is it's important to try everything as an artist for a couple of reasons. One, you want to figure out what your most optimal way of what your what your style is. You want to figure out what you actually like to make and how you like to make it. So play with different styles to figure out what your best type of of art is. You know, I did that in a YouTube context. I tried a lot of different things. I tried vlogging. I tried news reporting. I tried reaction content. I tried gaming videos. And if you're wondering, not all of these actually made it to the internet, I would realize before I went out of that, this, this was not what I was good at. You know, with gaming and Reacts... Collectively, I guess. With gaming, I realized I became so focused on the game that I didn't say anything, which isn't very engaging for a, a YouTube video. And with Reacts content, one, I felt like everything I did was so forced and so fake, and I just could not bring myself to do it. So I realized very quickly I didn't like those two things. But I didn't know if unless I tried. So as an artist, try everything, experiment with everything, feel everything, taste everything to figure out what you actually like to do. And number two, When you try all these different things, you gain little bits of experience in all of them that can then blend together to create your own unique style. So you're not just going to copy Casey Neistat, you're going to take a piece from Casey Neistat, you're going to take a piece from Mr. Beast, you're going to take a piece from this YouTuber, I don't know, David Dobrik, Logan Paul, and you're going to create this blend of content, this blend of art that is unique because you're pulling references from all your different styles and influences. I think it's okay in the beginning to try and replicate your artists because it's a great way to learn. And then you can figure out exactly what you like to create your own unique style. When it comes to Dali experimenting with lifestyles, yes, he was doing it to learn. But he was doing it because he's kind of a product of his time. So it's important to understand when Dali came up, and you're also a product of your time. I know we don't like to admit that, but we all are products of our time. When Dali came up, art was kind of in turmoil. It was shortly after the Second World War sorry, the First World War. Shortly after the First World War, before the Second World War, art was really in flux. All these movements were kind of being sprung out as a reaction to the Great War. And so this was a lot of the styles Dali was trying and a lot of the styles that were becoming prominent at the time was phobism and cubism were kind of having this like late resurgence. And then new movements were coming up like Dadaism, Surrealism, Futurism, and German Expressionism. So Dali's obviously trying to figure out where he fits in this shifting artistic landscape. There's less of a focus on classical intellectual painting. And so that's kind of like Dali's in this very eclectic mix of a painting world when he's coming of age as an artist himself. And so he's trying with all these different things and ultimately he lands on surrealism. And we'll talk about surrealism in a little bit, but surrealism is about channeling your subconscious in your art. But what set Dali apart is Dali, because he was a student, I guess, of the great masters because he'd spent time to learn about them and replicate their styles, Dali was able to bring this precision and vividness to the subconscious that no one else could really do. And so there's the blending of the styles, right? It's Dali tried surrealism, Dali tried classical painting, realistic painting, and he merged those two to create a unique style to him that allowed him to become one of the greatest artists of the 1900s, of all time, again, try a little bit of everything because it will allow you one to learn. It will allow you two to develop your own unique style. And yes, Dali did ultimately become arguably the greatest painter of the 1900s. Picasso was in that conversation as well. But Dali knew he had it in him. He said once. He promised to himself. When so he got so he grew up. For context, he grew up in Spain in this town called Cadaqués, and. He got into school to go to art school in Madrid. And in Madrid, he promised himself he was going to work like mad for three years before winning a prize that would allow him to study in Rome for four more years. After he studied in Rome, he said he was going to come back to Spain in triumph. And to quote Dali, he said, I'll be a genius and the world will admire me. Perhaps I'll be despised and misunderstood, but I'll be a genius, a great genius. I'm certain of it. Jumping ahead a little bit here, but Dali nailed that. Obviously, he didn't end up in his life. He didn't end up only studying in Madrid for three years. He didn't win a prize and go to Rome. But the fact that he was a genius, admired worldwide, despised and misunderstood, but a genius, couldn't really be any more accurate. And he wrote this when he's in his late teens. He foreshadowed the direction of his career in this quote. And there's just something so interesting about the greats who who are... I don't know if it's belief or what it is that allows them to foreshadow their career. Back to Tom Dreesen, the comedian who opened Frank Sinatra. When I interviewed him, he told me this story that I think about fairly regularly. Just this foreshadowing is just some I don't know what it is about it, but it's something that's interesting to me and I want to share with you. So Tom Dreesen was friends with Freddie Prince Sr. And for those of you who don't know, Freddie Prince Sr. went on The Tonight Show at 19 years old in the 1970s and he did so well in the Tonight Show, he landed a a role in a popular sitcom and essentially overnight became the most famous comedian on the planet at 19 years old. And Tom and Freddie were friends before fame. And so Freddie was from New York, he went to visit Tom in Chicago, and they performed at this gig together. And then after they were kind of sitting there looking up on stage, watching whoever was performing. And Freddie told Tom, he's like, I'm gonna be a big star one day, man. And Tom was like, Yeah. That's kind of how we all talked in those days. He's like, yeah, of course, man. And Freddie was like, yeah, I'm going to be a big star one day, man. And I'm going to go fast like James Dean. And he didn't really say anything after that to Tom. Tom was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I'm going to go fast, man. For those of you who don't know, James Dean became a hugely successful, one of the biggest actors in the world and died in a car accident at 24. Freddie Prince became one of the biggest comedians in the world at 19 and sadly took his own life at 22. So, we see this foreshadowing again where he knew he was going to become big, but he also knew that things were going to end quickly. And so, I don't necessarily have like a definitive takeaway on this foreshadowing, especially on the Dali and the Freddie Prince one. So, the Freddie Prince one, especially, there's no like takeaway from that. But there's just something about, I don't know if it's self belief, I don't know what it is, where these great artists know what they have in them but i don't know i just i'm, I'm struggling to come with like a, a succinct nice takeaway on this and dolly also had like he didn't force this wasn't the one time he forced out his career this was later on shortly thereafter this was in a letter he wrote to one of his friends and he said, don't tell anyone, but I think I'm doing really great things. I paint with true fury. I work hard at a line or a dot, erase it and remake it a thousand times. Evasion of the customary, of the anti-real, conventional reality to which the art of swine has accustomed us. I have the intuition that someday I'm going to say unknown things, ugly things, beautiful, ha ha ha. And so the last line of the line that really foreshadows his career because he would go on to say some truly profound and beautiful things, but he would also say a lot of ugly and unfortunate things. So again, he kind of knows what he has in him, both a good and a bad. But there's something else in this specific passage that caught my attention as well. He said, I work hard at a line or a dot, erase it and remake it a thousand times. And this hyper focus on the details is something you'll see again and again and again throughout the greatest artists in history. I think an obvious one and probably the most famous one is Steve Jobs, who was so hyper fixated on the details. He would focus on every last detail until it was absolutely perfect. Even the things people wouldn't see. And the story goes that a designer once asked him, why are we focusing on this? People will never see it. And essentially said, like, you'll know because Steve's dad, who, if I, I could become, this is like me quoting a story I heard. So this might not be hundred percent accurate, but Steve dad made furniture And Steve's dad would always spend a lot of time on like the back of the furniture that would sit against the wall. And Steve would ask him the same, like, why do you care about this? No one's going to see it. He's like, yeah, but I'll know. And so you want all the details to be perfect. And Steve Jobs was very specific, very focused on these tiny little details of every single product that they made. And you see this in other artists as well. David Fincher, who's one of the greatest living directors today, is known for taking a hundred takes. Of one simple shot. I think of there's this scene in the movie Zodiac. And this isn't a spoiler, so don't worry. But there's a scene in the movie Zodiac where the main character kind of throws his notebook on the passenger seat in his car. And they took that shot like a hundred times because Fincher wanted the way the book fell to be perfect, to be exactly how he pictured it in his head. And he was so precise in that detail, they did it over and over and over and over again. Another example of this is James Cameron. James Cameron is the director of movies like Avatar, Titanic, Terminator, Aliens. I read this book on him called Titanic and the Making of James Cameron, which is really about the making of movie Titanic, but it also kind of talks about his career a little bit. And there's this one passage where it talks about Cameron reviewing footage after a take. And it says, Cameron immediately planted himself behind the bank of monitors, reviewing the take camera by camera. The playback filled the air with piercing shrieks. Cameron watched the screen as one magazine described it like a man reading the fine print in his contract with the devil. That, to me, I don't think you can get more focused on the little details, a description of being more focused on the little details than that. Like reading the fine print in his contract with the devil. And again, like I said, you see this repeatedly throughout the greatest artists in history. And this is what Dolly was doing when he said that He would make a line or a dot, erase it, and remake it a thousand times, which in my interpretation, as he was doing it until it was perfect. And I kind of encourage you to have this mindset. And I feel like we're drifting further and further away from this when it comes to what gets made, especially in an online context. Perfect isn't perfect. Good enough is perfect. And again, I used to believe that myself, and I used to let that reflect in everything I made. But now I think about that, and I'm like, Why? You know, the small details matter. The mindset behind that quote is like the small details that will make something go from good enough to perfect are so small, nobody's going to notice them except for you. So it doesn't matter. And I understand the logic of that. And in isolation, each individual detail is so small, probably won't be noticed. But my belief now today is that each of those little details compound. And so if all of those details are missing, yeah, in isolation, no one's really going to notice them. But if they're all there, people will subconsciously take in that they're there. And it will make your piece better. These small details will compound. And so I encourage you to actually try to make something perfect. I think that like the balance here, the duality of that is nothing will ever be perfect. And you have to come to terms with that. But don't let this good enough is perfect, perfect isn't perfect mindset lead to you throwing out half-baked shit. Get as close to perfect as possible. Again, I don't think perfect is perfect. I don't think perfect is possible, but put everything you have into what you make and get as close to perfect as you possibly can. Within reason, right? Like you don't want to let this pursuit of perfection lead to you not releasing anything, lead to you constantly spinning your tires on one project. You know, just put the time in, do the hard work that's required, right? I think that this idea of good enough is perfect can lead to you not putting as much work on a piece as you know you could so put as much work in as you possibly can work hard on something and get as close to perfect as possible strive for greatness and i think strive for greatness when i say that i like instantly the argument in my head is like well, when it comes to social media you're releasing so much stuff that like not every single thing is going to be great so it doesn't matter i think it matters i think everything you should do should be great you should strive for greatness And in my mind, I would rather put out less and strive for greatness than put out more with, that's mediocre. Let's talk about surrealism. (laughs) Let's change gears here. Because surrealism was the style Salvador Dali would ultimately end up being known for. But the thing with surrealism is like, surrealism wasn't even really a style. It was more so a movement. And so like I said earlier, the goal with surrealism was to channel your subconscious in your art. Because the surrealists were massive fans of Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud talked about the subconscious and dream analysis and all this stuff. And so the Surrealists were fixated on this as the idea, is you have to channel your subconscious in your art. And the way they did that was with psychic automatism. So automatism is doing something automatically. And as defined in the Surrealist Manifesto from 1924, I believe, 1925, which was written by André Breton, who was a writer and poet, He said, psychic automatism in its pure state is dictated by thought in the absence of any control exercised by reason exempt from any aesthetic or moral concern. In English, what that means is the surrealists would essentially, whatever their art form was, we'll say painting in this case, they would just kind of paint absentmindedly and freely and automatically to see what would happen, to see what their subconscious would surface to the top. So it's like basically creating without any idea of what you're going to make and just seeing what your subconscious will come up with, which I understand what they're trying to do. And I agree with them. I think the subconscious is a very important part of art, but I don't think that this is necessarily the way to channel it, to try and just give your subconscious a space to present itself. I think that that idea is correct, is to allow your subconscious to present itself. But the way they tried to do it, I think... It's not the right way. And I look at this through a writing lens because I've written screenplays and stuff. So this is kind of like the the example I'm going to give to you and like the the lens I'm going to look at this through. When it comes to the subconscious is you want to have an intention behind what you're making. When you're making your first draft of your screenplay, you know what story you're trying to tell. You know who the characters are. You know, you have a rough idea of the story you're trying to tell. And so you're doing that. So you tell that story, you type it out. And then when you're done you go back and you read through that screenplay and as you read through it obviously your second draft you write with an eraser your whole the intent behind your second draft is to refine what you have and to figure out how to refine it is once you read through that screenplay that you wrote with intention there was a story you were trying to tell you're going to start to notice things in that screenplay your subconscious was trying to communicate through you you know the theme of your screenplay that what the the subtext of this story is, is actually going to be surfaced by your subconscious in that first draft. Your subconscious is going to try to tell you something, is going to communicate through you and the story you're telling a specific message. And your responsibility as an artist, in this specific instance, as a screenwriter, is to figure out what your subconscious was trying to communicate, what the theme is. And then for the second draft, You eliminate everything that doesn't have to do with that message your subconscious was trying to say, what the theme of your story is. And so you allow your subconscious to present itself in the first draft, and then you listen to it and you rewrite it in the second draft around that central idea. I think that's what you do is you create, and then you figure out what you're actually trying to say, and then you remake it with that as the focus. And when I say focus to you, I'm not talking about on the surface. You want whatever your subtext is, whatever your subconscious is trying to communicate, whatever the theme is, whatever the lesson is, is you don't want it to be on the surface. And I think another issue that the surrealists did is like the, the subconscious, I feel like, is the quiet part. The theme, the subtext of whatever you're making is the quiet part. But the surrealists were saying the quiet part out loud <laughs> with what they were making. They were trying to channel their subconscious and put it on the surface. And I don't think that that is the way to make a message stick. You know, the surrealism, like I said, wasn't a specific style. It was a movement. And it was a movement that featured a lot of different types of artists. You know, it wasn't just painters. It was painters. It was writers. It was poets. It was sculptors. Very primitive style, but it was filmmakers. You know, It was all these different people who were kind of galvanized around this idea, this mission. And the movement was galvanized around the idea that an over-reliance on rationalism shaped by bourgeois values had led to the outbreak of world war one it followed that redemption lay in the opposite in a world of spiritualism and the spontaneous and so essentially bourgeois values essentially is materialistic materialism and so the surrealists felt that because everyone became so materialistic it became about money and objects and the things you owned from a country level that countries were able to rationalize themselves into war over materialistic things, over money, over resources, et cetera. And so they feel like that that was bad and they had to just do a complete 180 and do go in the opposite direction, which was spiritual and spontaneous. And so I do like this kind of on the surface, this, as an idea, as art is a tool to change the world. Their goal was a total moral revolution of the individual and a liberation of the instincts. You know, art was the tool that they were using towards that goal. Art was the tool they were using to change the world. And I think that that is correct. I love that. Art is powerful. Art is the tool to change the world. Because when you think about it, art at its core, especially stories, are ways that allow us to confront ideas that might be complex, that might be scary to confront. And it allows us to confront them in a way that we're comfortable with. It presents them in a context we like through stories and entertainment. That's the whole reason. It's to allow us to pass lessons on and and confront ideas. That was what stories were made for. And so I do like the idea that art is a tool to change the world, to teach people a lesson, but the thing is, and this is a very important, but your message, whatever you're trying to say in your art should not be on the surface. It should be at its core. It should be the subtext It should be the theme of what you're trying to say. You know, look at Jurassic Park as an example. And this isn't my example. This is an example from Mike Hill, who's a film theorist, a story consultant, a designer. He's worked on Game of Thrones, Blade Runner 2049, Love, Death, and Robots. He's worked in gaming on Call of Duty, Killzone, Horizon Zero Dawn. I actually have an interview with him. He's the first interview on the show if you want to go listen to it. But the example is Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park on the surface is a story about dinosaurs. We brought dinosaurs back to life. Oh shit, all the dinosaurs went out and are eating people. That's the story on the surface. But at its core, it's a story about family. About family values and parental lessons. And so the movie isn't about parenting on the surface. They don't make it like the most obvious lesson. The movie on the surface is about the dinosaurs. And at its core, though, it's about family. And that's what you want to do. You want your message to not be on the surface. You want your message to be underneath everything. To be communicated subconsciously. Because as soon as you take what you're trying to say, and you put it on the surface of your art, you are no longer teaching me a lesson. You are telling me how to think. And people do not respond to that well. People do not want to be told how to think. They want to learn. They want to hear the lesson. They want to learn the lesson for themselves, but they don't want you to tell them the lesson. And so that is why you want your message, whatever it is, to be at the core, to be the quiet part, to let people almost discover the lesson for themselves. And that's how I think you channel the subconscious in your work. That's how you communicate what you have to say through your art. And so Dali joined the Surrealists in 1929. He had a quote that said, Surrealism could fill the void left by spirituality. There's two things I have to say on that. One is that I feel like The problems we have today, I feel like we think they're novel, that all of our problems are novel problems, but they're really not. You know, I think that applies in the one, in the artistic sense, where again, the problems that famous artists went through, are the problems we are going to have today, but two, like even from this spirituality perspective, like I feel like this crisis of faith and less people becoming religious is like a 21st century problem but this is something that was on dolly's mind back in the 1920s and 1930s and i guess nietzsche did say god is dead sometime in the 1880s but like this was a problem that they were having back a 100 years ago and i think it's like this novel problem that we're having now but it's really not and then all these problems we're having that examples of them have come before history is cyclical and i think we can so often forget that we get so caught up in our own time that we yeah we just we forget that and two Surrealism is the way to fill the void left by spirituality. I do think there's a level of validity to that. I don't think it has to be surrealism. I think it's just art. Because in my opinion, art is an exchange of soul. If you are truly making something purely, you are putting your soul into that art. And when someone interacts with your art and it makes an impact on them, they're taking that piece of your soul and they're making it a part of their own. It is a spiritual experience, if you ask me. True art that truly connects with someone is a spiritual experience. I don't think Dali is entirely off base with this idea of surrealism as a mechanism to fill the void left by spirituality. So I think that, again, I think that art can be a spiritual experience, absolutely. The next thing that's interesting with the surrealists is part of the rule of being a surrealist was you had to move to Paris to be a surrealist. You had to collaborate with the group. You had to attend salon dinners with the group. You had to participate in joint exhibitions with the group. And so proximity was important to the surrealists. And this isn't the first time this happened for Dali. He also, the school he attended in Madrid was this like specialty school that brought in political and artistic rising talents all to live together in the same area. So it was like Dali, where he met some of his, some important friends early on in his life, the poet Federico Garcia Lorca. The filmmaker Louis Bunel, who we'll talk about in a little bit as well, he met there. And so it was all these bright minds coming together, which obviously would have an impact on Dali. And then again, with the, with the Parisians or with the Surrealists having to move to Paris was an important part of that. I've been thinking about proximity a lot and how important it is as an artist, because... Yes, the internet is collapsing the need for physical distance to a degree. You don't have to be in a city to talk to someone. You can do a Zoom call. You can connect online. I get that. But there's still something that, that happens when you're all in the same area. And this has happened throughout history where bright minds come together and they all go on to do great things where it's like your learning is compounded because you're not learning by yourself. You're learning with a group of people. You're all sharing lessons and growing together and you all go on to do incredible things like there's these stories of Hemingway going to Paris and attending salon dinners and like running into Picasso and just the people he would spend time with in the 1920s. Again, this is a similar time that Dolly moves to to Paris. And even further than that, or moving further ahead in time, we looked like the late 1960s, early 1970s and the movie brats all become great friends. And these are these like up and coming directors who all end up again, becoming friends. And these up-and-coming directors who were dubbed the movie brats included George Lucas, who went on to make Star Wars, Francis Ford Coppola, who made The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, Steven Spielberg, who's made too many movies to count, Martin Scorsese, who, again, also has made too many movies to count, Brian De Palma made Scarface. So all these guys are coming together, and they all went on to do incredible things with their careers. And even more modern examples in the early 2000s, these group of filmmakers all ended up at 368 Broadway together. I believe they were all living in the same building. And 368 today is known for, or as the home studio of Casey Neistat, who is a YouTuber who did a daily vlog. And in my opinion, is one of the most important filmmakers, of the 21st century, because the impact he had on filmmaking and the amount of people who picked up a camera because of him is arguably greater than anybody else in history. So Casey Neistat's living there along with his brother Van Neistat. So they're filmmakers. They end up making a show for HBO and then Casey goes on to do the daily vlog. Also at 368 is Greta Gerwig who just directed Barbie. The Safdie brothers are there and I believe it was Josh Safdie who was just in Oppenheimer and the Safdie brothers are directors. They made Uncut Gems. And Lena Dunham is there as well and she made Girls. And so all of these people who are living in New York in the early to mid 2000s all went on to do incredible things with their career. So, this proximity thing shows up again and proximity in person. And if you're looking for like an example that's happening right now, and it's obviously hard to identify in real time, but I think there's a level of this happening in Austin. You know, you have all these comedians moving to Austin. So, there's like this the proximity there. Actually, even if you want to talk about proximity again when it comes to comedians in LA in the 1970s, Comedians from all around the U.S. moved to Los Angeles to go to the comedy store to get time at the comedy store because they knew Booker's for The Tonight Show and other shows were there. So all these comedians descended on L.A. at the same time. We're talking Freddie Prince Sr. We're talking Tom Dreesen, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams. All these massive comedians all moved like the same time as unknowns to L.A. and spent time together. You know, they used to go like at four in the morning, there was like 24 hour diner. I think Andy Kaufman was there too. And they would all go out after their sets and they would all just go to this 24 hour diner and hang out and like talk. And they just like, I can't just imagine the amount of lessons and learning that happens because they're all there together. And it's not a coincidence that all of these people who moved to the same place at the same time, all went on to do incredible things. And he get back to Austin. So all these comedians are moving to Austin. But there's also a very, very new one. I think they just moved in the last few months is these YouTubers who call themselves the YouTube new wave, who are YouTubers who aren't necessarily focused on sensationalism and money, but are more so focused on telling really good stories. And they all just moved to Austin and they all live like within a few blocks of each other. And this is people like Max Reisinger, Natalie Lin, Ryan Ng. I believe Al Mills is there as well. So all these YouTubers, just these YouTubers focus on storytelling, these talented filmmakers all just moved in very, very close to each other within a few blocks. I think that's going to be a fun one to watch play out over the next 10, 15 years. So remember those names because I think they're going to do some pretty cool stuff. Max Reisinger, Natalie Lynn, Ryan Ng, Al Mills, Wholesome Simon the YouTube new wave, just watch that group of people who all just moved to Austin, those filmmakers. Cause I think that could be an example of this proximity thing playing out over the next 10 to 15 years. And I think the thing is, is you can build that yourself, right? You're like, well, I don't necessarily know Martin Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola, or I don't know the next Casey Neistat. And I think the thing with the proximity is yes, there's a level of like talent identification when you're like building your circle and finding people to be in it. But the real thing here isn't that you need to find the best filmmaker you can find or the best artist you can find and become friends with them and be close to them. Like physically, like geographically close to them. But what you want to do, and you don't have to leave your city to necessarily do this. I think there is a level of leaving your city to go somewhere new and building this. But what the real takeaway here is, isn't to find the greatest artist on the planet to become friends with. It's to find a group of people who you want to build with, who you're happy to spend time with, who obviously have a level of talent and drive and ambition, but it's just to find people around you who are all building towards something so you can all build towards something together. You know, it's not trying to figure out who is the greatest, who's going to be the next Martin Scorsese. It's all of you getting together now and working together and pushing each other and being there for each other and learning together so that you can become the next Martin Scorsese, Casey Neistat, Francis Ford Coppola, whatever. And so proximity, the reason that all these people come together and it's just like great coincidence, they all went on to do great things. What are the odds that all these talented people would end up in the same place at the same time? The odds of them coming together aren't actually... like It's not the fact that all these people who went on to do great things were together at the same time. Like That's connecting the dots looking backwards. It's because they all lived together that they went on to do great things, not vice versa. It's not just this crazy coincidence that all these phenomenal filmmakers lived together. They became phenomenal filmmakers because they all lived together. That's the difference. That's the power of proximity. So it's not necessarily that you need to find the greatest, the next great filmmaker, it's to find people who you want to build with over the next five, 10, 15 years and push each other to become the next great artist. And you'll become the next great artists together. That's the important of proximity. And that's why the surrealists all came together. That's why the school Dali attended brought all the students together to live together in the same place. Because proximity matters. Find your tribe and build with them. And for Dali, his tribe, at least for a decade, was the Surrealists. And again, the Surrealist method was psychic automatism. But for Dali, psychic automatism never really worked. You know, he tried it a few times, he didn't like it. And so what Dali ended up doing was he developed his own style called the Paranoiac Critical Method. And the problem with the Paranoiac Critical Method is is that it wasn't even really a method. How Dolly kind of explained it was you want to induce yourself into a state of paranoia and let that drive your creativity. But that's, again, that's not, you can't really teach that. How do you become paranoid? You know, and so that's what Dolly was trying to do. He was trying to induce this state of paranoia because he said paranoid people are very creative. And, you know, this kind of dovetails into this conversation of, was Dali crazy or was Dali a genius? So I want to kind of, this kind of explains his thoughts on why he thinks that inducing paranoia is important for creativity, but then also why he's not crazy. So we'll kind of like do these two lessons in one. And this is actually quoting the uh, the Playboy interview once again. So the first half of this quote is, Paranoiac delusion, of course, is absolutely creative. The best kind of crazy. The whole difference between a crazy man and Dali is that Dali is not pathological. But even in true pathological paranoiac delirium, there exists some contact with reality. For instance, a good example of pathological delirium, a man feels that his family is against him and they want to poison his food. He begins to look around very closely at his family and discovers many things that are absolutely true. His fundamental assumption, of course, is wrong. Nobody wants to kill him. This is delirium and is crazy. But from his obsessional idea comes a marvelous quantity of perceptions of truth. He discovers many real things, thousands of insights and relationships that are unavailable to the average person that usual people never perceive. Because I have this power of discernment, I discover things that other people could not possibly suspect exist. And so what Dolly's saying here is by inducing a paranoid state, you are able to see the world in a different way. Because crazy people see things and find connections the rest of the world doesn't. So what Dolly was trying to do was to see the world in a way that was different from other people. He was trying to induce paranoia to make connections between things that didn't have any connection to lead to this creative explosion on the canvas. And because I guess technically you could say that this connection between two disparate things that have no real connection and finding a way in your mind to connect them is creative. And so that's what Dali was trying to do with the Paranoid Critical Method, was to induce paranoia so that he could make these connections and be extra creative. But here's the difference. So to quote Dali again here in this interview, The difference between Dali's paranoiac delusion and the other kinds of craziness is his ability to communicate his visions of delirium to other people. This is the ability to see clearly, which is at the basis of every artist. The clearest such vision was that of Leonardo da Vinci, who could create, for example, an entire battle scene just by looking at random water spots on a damp wall, sometimes for an hour or more. This is the true paranoiac phenomenon, because if you can see something in this way, it is possible for you to tell other people this is the nose of a man, for example, and they will see it exactly the same way as you. And the other kind of crazy, it is the contrary. You may have a vision or a dream, but after it passes, you cannot communicate it to other people because it is not systematic or organized. And so what Dali is saying here is the difference between a crazy person and a genius is a genius is able to articulate the way they see the world, which is different from other people to everyone else they can make the average person see the world the way they do and a crazy person can't do that and so with the paranoiac critical method method, what dolly was doing was again inducing this paranoid state to see the world in a different way and reflecting that in his canvas but again the problem with that is you couldn't actually teach someone how to do that that's not really a method it kind of reminds me of like the great professional athletes who can't really become coaches because they can't understand, and I'm like the best of the best, like the top 1% of the 1% of athletes ever, can't become great coaches because they aren't able to understand why the average player isn't able to do and see the game the way they see the game. This is kind of how what was Dolly's issue, is that this method was really only relevant to Salvador Dolly because nobody else could do it or understand because there was no real defined way to do it. And so the paranoia critical method was something that only Dolly could do. But I think for you, there's still a lesson in here. And the lesson is to try and induce paranoia to become more creative. I don't think you should do that. But I think what you should be doing is channeling your inner child. Because look at it this way. Dali is able to see things in the world and paint things on the canvas that only he can truly see and understand. But you know who else does that? Kids. A kid will draw a quote-unquote picture, which is just a bunch of scribbles on a page they can then bring you that picture and tell you a detailed story about what is happening in this picture. To you, it's just a bunch of scribbles, but a kid knows exactly what is going on in that picture. And so what I think, my understanding of this is, what you don't want to do, you don't want to induce paranoia. You want to channel your inner child to see the world as a child does, because a child is also able to make these connections. The child is also able to apply meaning to random scribbles that make sense to them, that make sense to nobody else. And so the goal here isn't to make yourself paranoid. The goal is to channel your inner child. And so even though the paranoia critical method isn't something that anyone else could really do, so it's not even really a method, it did lead to some of Dali's most famous paintings. You know, Dali was known for doing these things called double images, images that could be interpreted in multiple different ways. And the intent behind that was Dali wanted to make you paranoid. He wanted to drive you crazy with his image because you weren't even sure what you were looking at. If you want to Google this, one of the most famous ones is called Apparition of Face and Fruit Dish on a Beach. So you look at it, and there's a face, but then there's also a fruit dish, so you're not sure if it's a face or a fruit dish, and you can kind of drive yourself mad by looking at this image. Another one is Metamorphosis of Narcissus, if you want to look at that. While would try to show paranoia and craziness into his images, what he wouldn't do was tell you what they meant. He said that sometimes he himself did not even know the meaning behind his work, that his goal was to record, not to interpret what the images meant. And I... Honestly, don't necessarily buy that. I think what Dali is doing here is something that Freddie Mercury did as well. And Freddie Mercury refused to tell you the meaning behind his songs. He would always find a way to say they had no meaning or he didn't want to talk about meaning. He would always duck questions about the meaning behind his music. And the reason for that is because as soon as Freddie would tell you the meaning behind his song, what it's about, it now invalidates what every other person thought that song was about. It ruins the relationship every person has with that song. Versus if it's left open to interpretation, anyone can apply their own meaning to it, which creates a unique connection and bond with them to his song. And so he would always refuse to acknowledge the meaning in his work. And I think that's what Dali's doing here. It's he might know exactly what he's trying to paint. You know, he had iconography that repeated throughout his career. And I spoke with Nicolas Deschamps. You're actually going to get to listen to that interview. But what he told me is that Dali had iconography that repeated, which is like just images in his work because he was obsessed about these ideas and what they represented. So to me, that says Dolly knew what his paintings were about, but he didn't want to tell you what they were about so you could have your own unique experience with them. You could interact with them and try to interpret it through your own subconscious. So he was allowing each person to have their own unique experience with his art. And that is why he refused to tell you the meaning behind his work. But like I said, it certainly had meaning. Like Nicolas said in my interview with him is that it has... There, he was obsessed with these specific ideas, his iconography, and that's why they repeated. So Dolly would merge his interests into his paintings, You know, whether it be things that were on his mind, or we already talked about sex, death, his brother in his work. Those would reemerge over time. He obviously liked Freud and would have, I think there was even images of Freud in certain paintings, and he would channel Freudian ideas into his art. He really liked science, so he had a, a whole atomic period. He became very shaken after the atomic bomb and the power that humanity now wielded. And so he had this period where he called the atomic period where a lot of his paintings were broken up into quote unquote particles because he was very interested in science. He was also, especially later in his career, became very spiritual. So channeled a lot of spirituality in his paintings. So Dolly would most certainly merge his interests into his art. And that's obviously like a key to creativity is taking your interests and merging them into something else or merging two of your interests or three of your interests together to create something unique. But I want to talk quickly about Dali's love of science. Back to the whole crazier genius thing. Dali once arrived to a talk. I'm pretty sure, I believe it was 1955. And he arrived at this talk in a Rolls Royce convertible. And in the Rolls Royce convertible, it was stocked to the brim with cauliflowers. And people thought he was crazy. And he went on Dick Cabot, which was like a talk show in the 1970s and talked about cauliflower and the rhinoceros horn, how they have this thing in common. And everyone just kind of looked at him and laughed and they're like, this crazy guy's talking about rhinoceros horns and cauliflower and how it's relevant for painting. But Dolly arrived to his talk in a car, in a Rolls Royce, full of cauliflower, because what he was going to demonstrate with his talk, what he was trying to say on Dick Cabot that no one was really paying attention to, and kind of just laughing off because there was a language barrier and he's just this kooky, crazy painter, is that the golden ratio, which is like a design principle... Is present in everyday life. So the golden ratio is this like mathematical equation that was discovered in Greece in 300 BC. And the golden ratio is essentially a visual representation of Fibonacci numbers. It's when you can take any two numbers in a sequence and they add up to the next number in the sequence. So for example, if the first two numbers are zero and one, they add up to one. And so the next two numbers in the sequence are one and one, they add up to two. And then two plus one is three, three plus two is five. 5 plus 3 is 8, 8 plus 5 is 13, 13 plus 8 is 21, and so on and so forth. And so what Dali is saying here is that this golden ratio that he uses in his paintings is evident in everyday life. You can see it in a cauliflower, you can see it in a rhinoceros's horn. He even points to the fact that Leonardo da Vinci was talking about it in Sunflowers back in the 1400s. And this got me thinking, does the best art reflect the laws of nature? And this isn't like a a fully formed thought or theory of mine. This is just like a loose theory that I have. But when you look at the golden ratio, as Dolly was talking about, you can see it reflected in everyday life. And it creates these super satisfying images. Another example of this is the hero's journey, or some people call it the story circle, the Harmon story circle. And the story behind the hero's journey is was discovered, I guess, by this guy named Joseph Campbell, who is a cultural anthropologist. And he went around the world to study... The myths of different civilizations, beliefs, tribes, all of them disconnected from each other. Like they had no idea of the, the stories that everyone else was telling. So all these independent tribes, beliefs, civilizations all had their own myths. And all of these myths followed a similar structure, which he called the hero's journey, which ultimately ended up becoming known or appropriated by Dan Harmon and called the, the Harmon story circle. With that idea, it's like, to me, if none of them knew each other, they were all telling these stories that were similar, it's like, there's something instinctual about telling a satisfying story. There's a structure that they all follow that leads to a good story. I can hear like the argument. I was like, I don't want to follow a structure. I want my stories to be unique. You want to break all the rules without knowing what the rules are. Got it. But when I talked to my kill, who I mentioned earlier, what he said to me is like, look at it this way. The skull is a structure. The face is what sits on top of that structure. And how the face presents itself and manifests itself is different for each and every single person. Everyone has a unique face. No one's face is the same. They sit on top of the same structure, but they all are unique. And it's the same thing with stories is look at the story structure, the, the hero's journey as the skull and the story you tell as the face. And so you can still create something unique with a structure, with following these rules, but just seeing these two examples. And I'm kind of on the hunt for a third or fourth one. I might end up writing about this at some point. Yeah, but it's just like this loose working theory. So if you know something, if you have another example of like the laws of nature being reflected in art, please send it my way. Because I'm just curious to like kind of explore this idea further. But it's just something that I've been thinking about lately is like, does the best art follow the laws of nature? But anyways, jumping back to Dali, around the early 1930s, he was with a surrealist. He'd married his wife, Gala but they were pretty broke. Like he was starting to get some recognition, but it wasn't like huge. And so Gala ended up taking a meeting, Gala was Dolly's wife, with one of his aristocratic admirers named Prince Jean-Louis Fosigny-Lussing. And she was kind of explaining to him, here's a situation like, you know, Dolly's painting, but we don't have a ton of money. Things are kind of tight. She wanted to remove this financial burden on him so he could focus on creating his art. And what Gala who was probably the impetus of this idea and Prince Jean-Louis fosigny lucing came up with together, was this idea called the Zodiac. And the Zodiac was a group of 12 wealthy patrons, 12 Dali fans, who would pay an annual fee to Salvador Dali to get one of his paintings for free. And so they got 12 people to join this thing called the Zodiac. They each paid an annual stipend And that was enough to cover dali's salary for a year and so at like 28 years old dali has one of the most ideal setups you can have as an artist he can paint whatever he wants and all of his life and expenses are covered because part of the zodiac they weren't commissions they weren't telling him what to paint they just got the rights to own one of his paintings so each member of the zodiac they drew months to see which month they could go and take a painting from dali and that's why it was called the Zodiac so for the 12 months. And so again, he's got this super ideal setup and all it took was 12 people. I feel like there's the lesson here is that there's this hyper fixation today on fame and attention. You want to grow as fast as possible on TikTok. You want as many followers as possible. But I think the reality is that the best path to a sustained career as an artist isn't to the biggest audience. It's the right audience. Dolly was able to create full-time for an entire year with 12 quote-unquote fans. He didn't have millions, probably didn't have thousands, maybe not even hundreds at this point. And he was able to create full-time as an artist. It's not about finding the biggest audience, it's about finding the right audience. Even in a digital context, Kevin Kelly wrote this article, and Kevin Kelly was the founding executive editor of Wired magazine. And he wrote this famous article in like 2008, I believe. It's called "A 1,000 True Fans. And what he argues is this thing is that you don't need millions of fans to become a full-time artist. What you need is a 1,000 true fans. And he defines a true fan as someone who is willing to pay you $10 a month. If you can find 1,000 people who like your work enough to pay you $10 a month, that's $120,000 a year. That's a six-figure salary. That is more than enough. For you to create full time, and realistically, a thousand true fans might even be on the higher end, right? If you can convince six hundred people to pay you, or five hundred people to pay you a hundred, or sorry, ten dollars a month, they're one hundred twenty dollars a year. That's sixty thousand dollars. For a lot of people, that's a great place to start. If that allows you to create full time, that's amazing. Five hundred true fans, not even a thousand true fans, so you make sixty thousand dollars a year. You don't need millions of people. And sometimes going for the biggest audience is actually the wrong approach. You know, you look at, coming back to TikTok, you look at these TikTokers who just spread their way to like one, three, five million followers, but they're broke because it's not a high value audience. You know, you don't need all of these millions of people. So what the takeaway here is focus on building depth with your audience. Don't necessarily have to cast the widest net. Just build solid relationships with people in your audience. Develop a connection with them. The best example I've seen of this is Yes Theory. Now, Yes Theory does have millions of followers and stuff, but they've done such a good job building a deep connection with their audience that people will get Yes Theory tattoos. There are Yes Theory meetups. That Yes Theory doesn't organize or attend. People are just so galvanized around Yes Theory's idea of seeking discomfort that they all meet up together. And so Yes Theory has this diehard community who's so galvanized around their idea of seeking discomfort that they don't need to necessarily try to grow their YouTube channel forever. They just need to focus on strengthening and deepening the relationship with the audience that they have. And so again, you don't want or need the biggest audience. You just need the right one. And in Dolly's case... He just needed 12 people. And the Zodiac didn't last forever. I think it only lasted for a year, but there's even a lesson in that, right? Where Dali, because he was able to take care of the financial aspect of his work in one go for a year was taken care of and he could just create freely and make as much artwork as possible. He created this foundation that he was able to jump off of That allowed him to kind of build the rest of his career. So he was able to start getting more money coming in through sale of other paintings. He gets a wealthy patron named Edward James who starts supporting his work. And I actually want to talk about his relationship with Edward James for a minute. Because with Edward James, they started working on a couple objects together. So this requires some context. So the Surrealists started making these things called Surrealist Objects. And essentially what a surrealist object was, was a new type of sculpture, which they called assemblage. And so assemblage was taking disparate items that didn't go together and putting them together. So for example, there's one, this was in Dali, this is someone else, but it's like a, a teacup with that's a furry teacup, a teacup, like wrapped in animal fur. Dali made a few of these surrealist objects early on, but with Edward James, he made two that would become arguably the most famous surrealist objects ever made the first one being lobster telephone. So it's a telephone where the receiver is a lobster. Pretty self-explanatory. And so he made that and gave that to Edward James. And he also made this one called May West Sofa, Mae West Lips Sofa. And it's a sofa in the shape of Mae West, who was an actor, her lips. And these are two of the most famous, quote-unquote, surrealist objects that arguably were ever made, but definitely made by Dali. But the thing with these two objects is these are like household objects that Dali's making. He's making a couch, he's making a phone. As so Dali ends up becoming friends with the interior designer, Jean-Michel Franck. And with Franck, he went on to make a bunch of different furniture pieces. And shortly after that, he became friends with the dress designer, Elsa Schiaparelli, and, and together they worked on the lobster dress. And the lobster dress is a dress that she designed. There's a, a lobster painted on it by Dali. And so Dali was now getting into the interior design world, and the fashion design world. He also met up with Coco Chanel and some other designers and ended up making a perfume bottle in the shape of a mussel. He also worked on jewelry. Dolly started really weaving his way into all of these different forms. He's not only painting, but now he's, again, let me talk about interior design, fashion design, product design, and jewelry design. He's able to take his abilities as an artist and apply them to different mediums because he's able to express his ideas in many different forms. He doesn't just need a canvas. And to me, it's like, this is the difference between an artist versus a craftsman. Do you have something to say that you're able to express through your art? Or are you just able to make really pretty things? And all this work that Dali did in these different forms, in interior design, fashion design, product design, whatever, has an impact on this world today. Like before Salvador Dali, interior design wasn't weird, we'll say. Fashion design wasn't crazy. Salvador Dali really made a lot of these art forms what they are today, like the you can trace back what like you we've all seen videos of like catwalks from like a fashion week and everyone's wearing clothes that just make no sense, and you can trace that back to Salvador Dali. The same thing we look at like fancy expensive furniture that looks weird and pointless, you can trace that back to Salvador Dali. So Dali, his impact on the world is not only art; it can be traced back to many different art forms, even comedy, like the way Dali built his character, this myth of Salvador Dali, there was a lot of comedic elements to that that can be reflected in like different types of comedy. And so Salvador Dali's impact on this world is not just art. He truly had influence on many different art forms and types of creativity. And I don't think that that is acknowledged to them. You know, I'm personally just drawn to these artists that are multi-hyphenate, that are able to move in and out of different mediums that, to me, again, it just shows a true artist versus a craftsman. And one of these other art forms that Dali experimented with, which actually predates interior design, fashion design, everything, was done in the 1920s, was film. And so Dali teamed up with his friend Louis Bunel, the friend from school that I mentioned briefly, to make a film called Un Chien Andalou. And Un Chien Andalou, or an Andalusian dog, was a 16-minute black-and-white silent film, short film, surrealist film. And you can watch it. It's on YouTube right now if you want to go check it out. I'll be completely honest with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That was kind of their point. They were trying to sow paranoia into the film and to make it very surrealist. It worked. I mean, I was very confused when I watched it. I don't know if I was paranoid, but I was certainly confused. And it is regarded, though, as a very important film in surrealist filmmaking. And Dolly and Buñuel, when they actually made it, they were kind of upset that it got such a good reception because through the film, they were trying to cretinize this materialist culture and people just didn't get that. And so they were upset that people didn't get it. But it is a very important film. So Dolly, again, is finding another another art form to impact through film. And unfortunately for Dali, and Inchei Andalu was really his only contribution to film. It was a significant contribution. People do look back on it as an important surrealist film, but that was really it. He did work on another film with Bunel called Dog* a couple of years later. And that one, it's even contested how much Dali worked on that. Some people say he worked on the entire film like he did within Inchei Andalou. Other people say that he wrote one scene or that he wrote one joke, but Dali and Buñuel were kind of drifting apart at that point. So it's really contested how much he actually worked on it, but he still, despite that, tried to pursue film throughout his life. He tried to make a movie with the Marx brothers. He connected with them in Hollywood that never really materialized. He did end up working on a film with Hitchcock on the 1945 film spellbound. He was commissioned to do the dream sequence because Hitchcock felt he could represent dreams with such vividness, but the studio ended up making changes and they kind of scrapped the scene because it didn't, but it ended up being what either of them wanted. He also connected with Disney, not just like the Disney company, but Walt Disney himself to make a film. He ended up working with the, the artist John Hinch on a six minute short film that was going to be a part of a larger anthology film, kind of like a Fantasia. It was this short film called Destino that ended up being scrapped due to financial reasons. Disney did rediscover actually all the artwork much later and they remade a the film in the early 2000s, which is on YouTube. If you want to go watch it, it's just six minutes. But again, it didn't work in Dolly's lifetime. And later in his career, in like the 1950s and 60s, I believe, he wrote this screenplay called Flesh Wheelbarrow that he was trying to get going. And one, I just love the idea that he's later in life, he hasn't done filming forever, but he's still trying to get it going. He's still going for it. But he had some interesting ideas with the Flesh Wheelbarrow. He wanted to bolt the camera to the ground so you had one fixed viewpoint for the film. Because he felt that like when you're following the murderer around the house, for example, with the camera, there's like no surprise because you're with the murderer. There's no anxiety building. But if you are able to fix the camera to the ground and there's a murderer who moves off screen, you're now anxious because you don't know where he is. You can't track him. You can't follow him. So he's now doing things that you're unaware of. So you kind of almost, I guess you could look at it like a play in a sense where it's all happening from one fixed viewpoint. And so this kind of actually just brings us back to what we talked about earlier, where it's like Dali wanted to make changes. He wanted to break rules of filmmaking, but he did that because he knew the rules. He knew exactly what he wanted to break, why he wanted to break it, and the impact it was going to make on the art. He wasn't just doing things for no reason to try and be different. He knew exactly what he was doing and why he wanted to do it. I think this is like a good example of why you do need to study and understand the rules so that you can break them. And this isn't me necessarily saying that I think you need to bolt a camera to the ground. I don't think you should do that. But this is just an example of Dali still going for it, still trying to make innovations even later in his career. And quickly i just want to jump back to spellbound the movie dolly made with hitchcock where the scene they worked on together the studio ended up kind of getting involved and it did end up being what either of them wanted the scene was ultimately scrapped but what i want to kind of highlight here is these like the the quote-unquote the middlemen stepping in and tampering with the vision of dolly and this wasn't the first time that this happened to him in 1939 he was commissioned by Bondwitt teller which was a popular department store in new york on fifth avenue to do two window displays for them. And they'd worked with Dolly previously in 1936, so three years later they thought they'd work with him again. No problem. And so Dolly did two window displays for them, one representing day and the other representing night. And this is quoting artstory.org. They said, In the day window, Narcissus is personified. Three wax hands holding mirrors reached out of a bathtub lined with black lambskin and filled with water. A mannequin entered the tub in a scant outfit of green feathers. For the night window, the feet of a poster bed are replaced by buffalo legs, and the canopy is topped by its pigeon-eating head. A wax mannequin sat nearby on a bed of coals. And the customers of Teller and Teller themselves weren't excited about either of these two different window displays. And so they decided to go in and they would swap out the mannequins for some of their own mannequins wearing suits. And when Dali saw this, because they didn't consult him on this, they just went in and made the changes. And when Dali saw this, he flipped. He went into one of the window displays with the bathtub and he was trying to flip the bathtub and ultimately ended up pushing it and getting caught and flinging himself out of the window of Bonwit Teller. Dali got arrested. He eventually got let off because Edward James intervened. But this was the first time that somebody tampered with the vision of Dali, And later in 1939, apparently not learning from this incident whatsoever, the New York World's Fair commissioned Dali to do a pavilion for them at the New York World's Fair. And so Dali designed and built a pavilion which he called the Dream of Venus. But once again, the middlemen, quote unquote, went in and tampered with his display. And their biggest issue was the fact that Dali in this pavilion wanted to put a, we'll call it a reverse mermaid, where instead of a tail, a fish's tail, had a fish's head and human legs. And so the organizers really didn't like this, so they went in and they changed the display. But luckily for the organizers' case, Dolly had already left the country, was on his way back to Paris when he found out about this. So he couldn't go in and destroy the pavilion, but he did write a letter, and a letter that I want to read you because I think it's so good. And he kind of like spoofed the name of the Declaration of Independence. He called this the Declaration of the Independence of the Imagination and of the Rights of Man to His Own Madness. This is a little bit long, but I think it's worth it, so bear with me. The committee responsible for the amusement area of the World's Fair has forbidden me to erect on the exterior of the Dream of Venus the image of a woman with the head of a fish. These are their exact words. A woman with the tail of a fish is possible. A woman with the head of a fish is impossible. This decision on the part of the committee seems to me an extremely grave one. Because we are concerned here with the negotiation of a right that is of an order purely poetic and imaginative, attacking no moral or political consideration. I have always believed that the first man who had the idea of terminating a woman's body with the tail of a fish must have been a pretty fair poet. But I am equally certain that the second man who repeated the idea was nothing but a bureaucrat. In any case, the inventor of the first Siren's Tale would have had my difficulties with the committees in Immortal Greece. Fantasy would have abandoned. What is worse, the Greeks would never have created their sensational and truculently surrealist mythology in which, if it is true that there exists no woman with the head of a fish, as far as I know, there figures indisputably a minotaur bearing the terribly realistic head of a bull. Any authentically original idea presenting itself without known antecedents is systematically rejected, toned down, mauled, chewed, re spewed forth, destroyed, yes, and even worse, reduced to the most monstrous of mediocrities. The excuse offered is always the vulgarity of the vast majority of the public. I insist that this is absolutely false. The public is infinitely superior to the rubbish that is fed to it daily. The masses have always known where to find true poetry. The misunderstanding has come about entirely through those middlemen of culture who, with their lofty airs and superior quackings, come between the creator and the public. There's a lot to unpack from that. There's three specific areas I want to kind of pull on. And the first one being is that original ideas get rejected. And we already talked about this earlier in this podcast, where if your idea is too original, if there's nothing that people can compare it or relate it to, they're going to reject it because... People inherently don't like change. So when there's something that's new that is a change for them, they're naturally going to push back on it. And so if you want to introduce original ideas into the public again, what we said was you want to present the idea in a context people are familiar with. You don't want to do a wholly new idea. A a new idea in a context people are familiar with. That is a way to inject originality in a way that people will accept. Two, I want to talk about bureaucrats. So bureaucrats, the official definition is an official in a government department, in particular one perceived as being concerned with procedural correctness. And when Dolly's talking about this, I don't think he's necessarily talking about governmental bureaucrats, but more so like bureaucrats within a company or within the organizing committee. The governmental body of the New York World's Fair, we'll call it. Is that they are so worried about being correct and giving people what's already what's known. They want to play it safe. That that is why they intervene. That is why artists today feel the need and always have felt the need to conform to what is popular because the bureaucrats, the middlemen, will get in the way of the artist making anything original because there is no known precedent for it working. It's why we're in a world today where sequels, spin spinoffs, and reboots keep getting made because the middlemen, the quote-unquote the bureaucrats, know that it's going to work. And so it requires an artist to take a risk to give you something new, and then with what Dali says where he's sure that the first person to come up with a mermaid was a true poet, but the second person to do it was almost certainly a bureaucrat because it takes an artist to take the risk to prove that something is possible and then everyone else will follow suit. The bureaucrats will jump on that trend immediately because they see that it works and they know they can do it to make money and get attention. And so Dolly here is saying that he's trying to take this risk to give you something new, but the middlemen are getting in the way because they don't think it's going to work because there's no precedent for it. You know, it's not procedurally correct with what with their understanding of what consumers want. But again, I implore you as the artist is you have to take that risk. That's how we get innovation. That's how we get new ideas is because individuals like you listening to this took a risk to give us something new. And again, the if you want a higher chance of it being accepted, you have to present it in a way that is familiar while also being new. And that's not obviously an easy thing to do. That's where your creativity comes in. And so middlemen will always get in the way. They always have. They always will. So it comes down to you, the artist, to take the risk, to give people what they don't even know they want yet. You know, because Dolly says that he's sure that the masses know more about art than like the quote unquote, the middlemen or the critics. And I think this is a, like a debate I wrestle with in my head a lot, right? Because it's like, you can make something good or great even that nobody watches. You can make something bad that everybody watches. And so it's like, this really leads us into this difficult conversation on taste and what is great taste and how do we determine who has great taste and is all taste valid? Like what makes great taste great? You know, and I think kind of where I land on this spectrum of like, where you can make great art that no one watches or bad art that everyone watches. Why don't strive to make great art that everyone watches? I think that should be the goal. I don't think you should have to try to make something really good or you have to make something that everybody watches. I genuinely believe there's a place in the middle where you can make something great that everyone watches. I don't necessarily know if I agree that the masses know more about art than the critics. I think a lot of what people like to watch and listen to is very mimetic, that they see other people consuming it, so they go and watch themselves, that a lot of people don't know what their own tastes are. I think an important part of taste is the ability to articulate it. And to a critic's credit, whether you agree with art critics or not, they are doing their best to articulate their taste, why they like something and why they didn't. And a lot of people today don't do that. They just say, I like this, I don't like this. They have no effort or capacity or care to try and understand why. So I would argue and push back a little bit on the notion that the masses know more about art than the critics, but where we can kind of change the definition here of what Dahlia is saying is that the critics don't always know what the masses are going to respond well to. And that I will 100% agree with. And Dolly knew that because as his career progressed and progressed, he cared less and less about what the critics had to say, which is obviously a good thing to an extent. But what happened with Dolly is he became attention-seeking, commercial, and ultimately kind of was the art community kind of distanced themselves from Dolly. You know, he became very much a fame-seeking version. Like fame, when he got to America, he described fame as intoxicating as a spring morning. And so he would do whatever he could to get more fame and more attention. And interestingly enough, America loved Dolly's ability to self-promote. They absolutely loved it. You know, for example, there was, he obviously had many different things. The incident that really set this off for him was the incident bond with Tyler. When he threw that tub through the window, he got a lot of press that he wasn't expecting and realized that by being outlandish know, and doing these quote unquote, like these stunts, he'd get a lot of attention in America and Americans seemed to like it. And so when he came back to America in 1940, so through the 1930s, he didn't actually live in the U.S. He was just back and forth a lot. And then when the war started in Europe, he came over and he lived in the U.S. with his wife, Gala, from 1940 to 1948. And when they moved to the U.S., they spent a little bit of time on the East Coast and they went out to the West Coast. And when they got to the West Coast, they knew that they needed to throw a stunt, one, not only to get publicity, but two, to kind of like cement themselves with celebrity culture on the West Coast. And so they threw this fancy dinner called the Night in a Surrealist Forest. I was under the guise of raising money for the war effort. And so they threw this party with like crazy outlandish like uh, decorations, including like live animals were part of the decoration. They had like a pretty beefy guest list as well. I think Clark Gable was there, Bing, Co- Bing Crosby, the Hitchcocks, millionaires flew in from New York, from LA, and they had this lavish dinner. And unfortunately... Uh, there was no money left over for the war effort because of how much they spent on the dinner, but it did cement the dollies with celebrity, with the celebrity social life on the West Coast. And of course, like America, they covered this fancy dinner, this exclusive dinner. The dollies knew, I say the dollies collectively because Gala is a part of this. They knew how to get attention, how to leverage celebrity culture for fame and attention to media coverage. And Americans loved their ability to do this, which I find so fascinating. That even back in 1940, again, this feels like a novel a novel problem where people just are famous for being famous and they aren't actually famous for their craft. But even back in the 1940s, Americans loved Dolly's ability to self-promote. He essentially was becoming more famous for being famous. And like, I'm not trying to discredit his art in any way, shape or form. I'm not doing that. His art is fantastic. will always be fantastic. But Dolly himself agrees that he might not be the most famous painter in the world, that he is famous just for being famous. You know, there's this documentary made in the 1980s called Arena. It's on YouTube. You can find it. It's on a small YouTube channel. But Dolly himself said in this documentary that when people come up to him and ask him for his autograph, when he's in the streets and someone's coming up to him, they don't know if he's a painter, a poet, a filmmaker, or a madman. They just know that he's famous. And so Americans have always had this fascination with those who are able to become famous. And I don't know why that is, but this is just something that I wanted to highlight. Maybe if you have an insight on that, I'd love to hear it. Please message me. But I just think about it a lot. It's like Americans, Dali became famous for being famous. He got so good at it that there's this quote from the New York Times that said, Dali needs a stage with greater urgency than he needs an art gallery. Because he was so good at it. He was a showman. He was theatrical. And Americans absolutely ate it up. And I say Americans not to like Not as a bash or anything. It's just the genuine truth. Like, they didn't necessarily care as much for his ability to self-promote and get attention in Europe. Like, his entire time in the United States, in the 1940s, they didn't really talk about him as much in Europe at all. But he was becoming more and more famous on this side of the Atlantic. And I just find that so interesting. And then, like, what's the... Like, as an artist, like, I debate on this. It's like, I don't think you want that as an artist. I think you want people to respect you for the work. I don't think you want fans who are you a fan because you're famous? I think you want fans who are your fans because they think, because they love your work and they connect with your work. And for Dali, especially as his career progressed, it felt like more and more people became his fan because he was famous and not because they liked his paintings. And again, it does funnel people to his paintings for sure. But at the same time, it's like, for Dali, it didn't feel like everything was in service of the paintings. For Dali, it feel like everything was in service of Dali. And again, he had to, that was his goal. His goal was to get the message and the word and the fame of Dali out there. And I guess that was his goal when you think about it from the beginning where it's like he set out to create this myth and to become this myth and he's kind of doing that. But as an artist, when I'm thinking about this, it's like that to me feels unfulfilling. You know, it's like, I think the goal is, obviously you should have a brain. We talked about this, the story you tell outside of the story matters. You know, for me, I'm a fan of Quentin Tarantino movies, but the story of this was a guy working in a video store who loved movies so much that he was able to become one of the greatest directors ever is a cool story that I just connect with. That makes me like Tarantino more. That makes me want to watch his next movie. That makes me appreciate his films even more. And so the story you tell outside of the story matters. But I think at the end of the day, you want everything to be in service of the art. And to me, I'm saying this now, like that feels too optimistic. That feels too idealistic. I think you have to play the game a little bit. Not everything is about the art. You do have to play the game. You have to get the attention so people know what you're making and know who you are. But when you're doing it just to get more fame and attention, it's like, what's, what's the point? But then again, I think about this, I'm really thinking about this in real time here. But then I think about this in the other respect where it's like Dali played this fame game and of all his critics, he's the one that's most remembered. Out of any painter of the 1900s, you could argue Picasso has stuck around kind of the, the culture and the vernacular a little bit longer, a little bit better. But other than Picasso, and you could even argue that point, Dali is the most remembered painter from the 1900s. And so I really go back and forth where it's like, is seeking fame and attention the wrong thing to do? I think, let me try to succinctly summarize this. I think it's the wrong thing to do when you do it just for the sake of itself. I think you want to seek attention f- so that you can funnel it to the art. You have to play the game. You have to do the promotional thing. You have to do the marketing. But it should be done with the intent of getting people to the art, to make things for the act of making things and to try and get people to watch, to appreciate what you've made not notch, to get people's attention so that they can applaud you. I think that's where the art community started to push back on Dolly because it felt like he was just trying to get attention to get the applause. And in this later half of Dolly's career where he's really kind of disconnected from the artistic community, he kind of stops. He stops caring about what the critics have to stay. And he's just really doing whatever he wants. He was constantly experimenting Of course, with his paintings, he tried different painting styles. He was painting different themes. He tried op art, pop art, video, performance art, holograms. In the 1970s, Salvador Dali was making holograms. Like he was still creatively had a lot left in the tank and he was still going for it. And again, I just love finding out about these people who are in their 70s and 80s who are still going for it, still wanting to make the thing. That to me is just so inspiring. That's what you want. You want to be creatively just have that much juice left in the tank and so much left to give you know you hear Martin, Martin Scorsese I don't know how old he's off the top of my head he is late 70s, 80s still has so many movies left to give you know and I just I just love that that Dolly was still going for it and the thing was though because he was doing this he didn't really care about what the, what the community had to say what the artistic community had to say he was kind of just trying to have fun and there's this quote this Playboy interview which again I think the Playboy interview is great I've quoted it quite a few times in this but he's talking about kind of where he's at in terms of painting. And I I think this relates to making your opus. What Dali said, I'm going to quote him here. In all the arts today, the only good is Dali, but for conception, not for realization. There's no time to realize good paintings. I'm afraid to create something good, a masterpiece, because if I do, the next year I will be dead, creatively at least. For everybody, it is the same. Raphael, after painting something marvelous, and Vermeer, after painting his view of Delft, found it impossible to do more. The same is true for Mozart for Leonardo, every painting was a disaster, but he kept painting because he felt that perhaps the next year he would achieve something marvelous. I feel so too. And to me, how I kind of interpret that is he's not trying to make something amazing. He's not trying to make his opus because in order to actually try and make your opus, you have to put so much of yourself into it that by the time you're done, you have nothing left to give. You're just absolutely creatively tapped and you feel like you have to top it. But if that's your masterpiece, how can you top it? And you don't have enough to try and exceed what you've done previously because you put everything you had into making this masterpiece. And I think, too, on the note, is it, like you don't control what your masterpieces are. You know, when it comes to art, when you make something, once you're done with it, it's no longer yours. You release it into the world who will then take that piece of art and interpret it in ways you can't foresee or control. Their experience with it is not one you can anticipate because like we talked about earlier, art is an exchange of soul. So you can anticipate the soul of someone else and how they're going to connect with what you've made and how their personal experience will influence their view on your work. And so I think when it comes back to this Dali quote is the culture, the people will decide what your best work is. And obviously you can like try hard on pieces of art, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying that you can't dictate like just because I worked hardest on this means this is going to be my greatest work ever and you know bring it back to YouTube after doing these interviews for five years a common sentiment is like the videos that I thought were going to do really really well performed poorly and the videos I thought that were going to perform poorly are some of my best videos ever from a performance standpoint and again I know viewership doesn't equal greatness but like the point I'm trying to make here is you can't control what the public is going to receive and how they're going to receive it So as an artist, you have to keep the process fun to keep experimenting, to keep trying things because you never know which one of the pieces will be viewed as your opus. And so Dolly wasn't trying to make his opus at this point in his career. He was just keeping the process fun and and doing what he wanted to do. And I love that. And I love that he was just still going for it and just exploring and having fun with all these different creative ideas into his seventies. But the problem with Dolly is the more that I learn about him, the less that I like him. And there's a number of different scandals and things that go into that. And I'll I'll go through them with you here now. I feel like I would be doing an unfair profile of someone if I didn't talk about these negative sides. I don't want this to just be, look at all these great things and kind of like push the bad stuff in a closet. Now, I do want to preface this with the fact that the book, the primary book I read, obviously, for this was The Shameful Life of Salvador Dali, which is the definitive biography of Dali. But it's clear when reading that book that Ian Gibson didn't like Dolly very much. You know, Donna Dez, who's a Dolly expert, well, I read one of her books for this. She says that he ha- held no hesitations of giving Dolly a boot at every opportunity. And so th- I do want to preface it with that, that he didn't necessarily like Dolly. But again, he spent years researching Dolly. So that dislike of Dolly might be justified with everything that he learned. But so I want to s- just wanted to preface that a lot of these things that I'm to talk about here do come from this book. And that's where I got a lot of these bad stories from. But I just want to say that the source is someone who doesn't seem to like Dali. But I still wanted to kind of highlight all of this to you. Because again, the more I learned about Salvador Dali, the less that I liked him. And so Dali, earlier I mentioned how his surrealist period was about a decade. About 1928-29 to 1938-39. And the reason Dali was only with the surrealist for a decade is because they decided to expel him from the, from the group, from the movement. You know, there was a number of different reasons for this, but some of the big ones were political differences that they had. Dali had too much of a focus on money and commercialism. In fact, André Breton, the leader of the Surrealists, named Dali, gave him a nickname called Avida Dollars for his focus on money. Dali started to bash automatism because Surrealists kind of tried to adopt the paranoia-critical method. They ended up reverting back to automatism because, again, like we talked about, The Paraniac Critical Method wasn't even really a method, so no one else could really do it. But because they reverted back, Dali started to bash the Surrealists' anatomatism for doing so. Dali also had some nice things to say about Adolf Hitler, which the Surrealists weren't too stoked about. André Breton also said that apparently Dali made some not-so-nice comments about people that weren't white. And so, yeah, it was a combination of of these issues that the Surrealists ultimately ended up expelling Dali from the group. And Dali honestly didn't even really care. <laughs> to be, for being completely honest, he knew that his base was so big in America that he could kind of say whatever he wants and they would take it as gospel. No one else in the Surrealist group could really say anything to counteract it because they were nowhere near as famous as he was. And so he continued to call himself a Surrealist. He called himself the only true Surrealist. And so Dali was perfectly fine kind of burning all of those bridges. And truthfully, he was okay with that as well, because he said repeatedly that all he really needed was his wife, Gala. <laughs> and Gala was an interesting lady. Dali and Gala met in 1929 when a group of Surrealists went out to Karakay to visit him. And this included René Magritte and his wife, Louis Bonnel, and Paul Eluard also came and he brought his wife, Gala the same Gala that Dali would marry, the same Gala that Dali would fall in love with on that trip, and that same Gala who would leave Palo for Dali on that trip, along with her daughter Cecile, who she never really had a good relationship after that fact. So Gala leaves her husband, no problem. And I don't like the idea, like, the insinuation that Gala was doing it because Dali was famous or a gold digger, or that she was a gold digger. Dali was dead broke at this point in time. So unless she's, like, a long-term gold digger where she knew that he had potential to be famous... I don't I don't want to I don't know why she ultimately left. I, I don't want to speculate, I don't really know. But she left her husband for Dali. And Dali and Gala were together from that point forward. And a lot of the success and a lot of the reasons we know Dali for today, both the good and the bad, can be attributed to Gala. The story of Dali is a completely different one if Gala never enters the picture. And so she ultimately she became his business manager. She starts taking care of all the money, and that was not a good idea because she didn't have the greatest money practices on the planet she would only take anything in cash. And where that cash ended up is really a mystery because it was in multiple different bank accounts in multiple different countries. She would put it into suitcases and and duffel bags and like smuggle it across borders on the flight because she didn't want to pay taxes. So Gala's money problems were evident. Gala also wasn't faithful to Dolly. She took many lovers during their time together. I think, to be honest though, and to be completely fair to her, I believe this was a type of understanding or agreement that the Dolly's had come to. And this wasn't necessarily the biggest surprise when you think about it. She wasn't exactly faithful to Paul Eluard either. She also had many different lovers through her time with Eluard. Her leaving Eluard for Dolly wasn't even the first surrealist she'd been with while with Eluard. She was with Max Ernst, I believe. She was with André Breton and someone else as well. But so she had many different lovers and she had money problems. Not only did they not know where the money went, she also started gambling a lot of the money. She started spending a lot of the money on her lovers. And so they eventually brought in a different manager. His name was Peter Moore. And Peter Moore very, very quickly realized how bad Gala was with money. He took over. And one thing he realized too, was that they they made some like anti-Semitic comments or something like that, or they were anti-Semitic. And a lot of the Jewish dealers in New York wouldn't deal with the dollies because of that, and so he spent time repairing the relationship with a lot of the Jewish art dealers in New York. But Peter Moore's deal with the Dali's is he gets 10% of anything other than the sale of original paintings, which goes directly to Gala. Everything else he can dream up, any product or collaboration he can concoct, he gets 10% of. And at some point during this period, Dali enters into what ultimately became known as the blank sheet scandal. And so printers were willing to pay Dali $10 to sign a blank piece of paper because they could print whatever they want on it and sell it as an authentic work which, yes, is in fact fraud, And in that arena documentary that I mentioned, which was, again, from the 1980s, they said by the 1970s, Dali didn't really care about the public that he conquered at this point. All he really cared about was what was best for Dali, what was best for Gala, and often what was best for them was money and making as much money as they possibly could. And so Dali would sign these blank sheets of paper. It's reported he could sign up to a 1,000 an hour. And there are people who want to like come to Dolly's defense in this and say he didn't know what was going on. He was being tricked by his managers. And I find that hard to believe because he was signing, again, 1,000 pages an hour. They had a system. One assistant would stand on his left. One assistant would stand on his right. The assistant on the left would feed in a piece of paper. He would sign it. The assistant on the right would pull it out. And then they would just do that over and over and over again. He would sign 1,000 pages in an hour. And again, that is $10,000 an hour. It's reported that over the course of the decade or so that he did this, 350,000 blank sheets were signed. That's $3.5 million. And so in my opinion, you can't do something 350,000 times. Like, there's no way he was tricked 350,000 times. So he was willingly participating in this fraudulent system because it benefited him and he did not care about the people who he, who were his fans, who admired him, who admired his work. It was all about himself and his improvement and the betterment of his situation. And he didn't care that there was up to 350,000 people who were going to get ripped off because of this. And so it's things like this and then you hear other stories about his mistreatment of animals, his weird behavior around certain women that it just all kind of compounds and it really makes him a hard person to like. On top of that, we've obviously talked about the fact that he had nice things to say about Adolf Hitler, but he also had a lot of nice things to say about General Francisco Franco. And so Franco was a dictator in Spain who rose to power following the Civil War in 1939, and he was in power until he passed away in 1975. And Franco was a fascist. And the, their fascist. he was a dictator and a fascist, and their regime had no qualms about forced labor, concentration camps, and executions. And Dolly refused to denounce fascism, refused to denounce Franco. An example of this is in 1975, there were more executions done by Franco and the Spanish public had had enough. They started protesting these executions. And this was Dolly's response, not to the executions, but to the protests. Personally, I'm against freedom. I'm for the Holy Inquisition. Freedom is shit. And that's why all countries fail when there's an excess of freedom. Lenin said so. Freedom is no use for anything. And it's like, you hear that, and it's like, the first thought that comes to my mind isn't, wow, what a great guy. You know, like, that is just insane to me. And there are people who will come to Dolly's defense of this and be like, well, the reason that Dolly was doing all of this was because He just really wanted to go home to Spain. So he wouldn't denounce Franco. He wouldn't denounce fascism so that he could continue living in Spain. And I hear that. And I understand what you're trying to say. But at the same time, people were murdered and his response was freedom is shit. Like, it's just hard to hear things like that and still like him as an individual. And so this obviously begs the question then, like, can you separate the art from the artist? And I wrestle with this question often. And I think humans inherently do, do separate art from artists. We have no problem listening to people who we think are problematic individuals, but if their art is great, we can do that. And I think part of the problem with separating art from the artist is like we've talked about, once you've made a deeper connection with art, it's no longer about the person who made it. It's about you and your experience with that art. And so in that respect, I think, of course, you can separate the art from the artist because your experience is with the art and not with the artist. And I think humans inherently do that anyways. And I think with Dolly that will continue to happen because as we progress further and further through time and get further and further away from his passing, I think the facts of his life become less and less known. That the people just tend to know about the art and unless you really do the homework and do the digging to learn about him, you're not going to learn about any of this stuff. You're not going to learn about the weird money practices. You're not going to learn about the blank sheet scandal. You're not going to learn about the nice things he said about Hitler. You're not going to learn about his refusal of denouncing fascism. You're just going to hear about the art. And so I think naturally over time, the art just... It just happens organically. Naturally, the art gets separated from the artist. Let me give an example. Leonardo da Vinci, arguably the most famous painter of all time. What do you know about him? Nothing. How many of his other paintings can you name other than the Mona Lisa? Maybe The Last Supper? Maybe. And that's like, you don't actually know anything about Leonardo da Vinci for the most part. And so I think naturally over time, there is this separation from art and artist. As the details of their lives become less and less known. And so my answer, I guess, on this is, yeah, I think you can separate art from artists. And I think it does happen naturally. And so if that's the case, what's his legacy? For a lot of people, especially during his life and shortly thereafter, they kind of just discarded the second half of his life and his career. It was pretty much anything after the surrealist period no one paid attention to. Even though he did a lot of great work during that time, including like these innovations and pushing things and boundaries with holograms and things like that. But again, a lot of people just kind of discounted that period of his career. And I think that there is a growing appreciation for it now, you know, as we kind of separate Art and artist, naturally, like we've talked about. So there's sure to be like this reevaluation of Salvador Dali's life, legacy, and work. And whether you like his legacy, whether you like him as a person or his legacy or whatever, you can't deny the impact. He's impacted art, obviously. He's impacted film. He's impacted comedy. He's impacted interior design. He's impacted fashion design, product design, marketing, branding. His impact is truly felt in so many places, whether you know it or not. And so was he a genius? Was he crazy? Was it all calculated? I don't know. And I don't think we'll ever know. Because he spent his entire life trying to turn himself into a myth where the facts didn't matter. I'm going to leave you with this. This is a quote from Max Ernst, a fellow surrealist. And he said, who made art history? Not the most reasonable people. The madmen did. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. I would love to hear what you thought of this format. Like I said, this was the second time I recorded this. This is a completely different feel to what this originally started as. It's less scripted. It's much more off the cuff, much more free flowing. And so I'd love to know your thoughts. And if you enjoyed this or changes you'd like to see made, I want to build this with you. I don't want to just do this in isolation. So please feel free to send me any feedback you have on this first episode of the show. And if you do want to, and if you enjoyed this and you want to support the show, there's a few ways you can do so. One, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Two, you can subscribe to our newsletter at the link down below. Again, you'll be getting quotes from the books I read to prepare for each and every season. Two, you'll be getting excerpts from interviews with experts related to each of our seasons. So if you've made it this far, I'll let you know who's coming on the show this season. We've got Nicolas De Charon, who's a leading Salvador Dali expert, whose father was close friends with Dali. We have Jack Bond, who is the only director to have ever made a film with Salvador Dali. And we have Dr. Christopher Heath Brown, who is a co-author of The Dali Legacy and one of the, if not the leading collector of Dali graphic works in the entire United States and potentially the world. So we've got some solid guests coming your way on this show. You'll be getting excerpts of those interviews around Key Points in your inbox if you subscribe to the newsletter. And the third thing you'll be getting is Essays on me pulling one of the key lessons from each season and going deeper on it in the form of an essay. So if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, you can do so with a link down below. And if you want to go even deeper and do more research on your own, the books I read for this season will be linked in the show notes down below. It is an affiliate link. So there is a kickback that goes towards the show. But the easiest way to support the show is to keep listening. So thank you for being here. And now, go do our well. Are you still there? that means you've made it to the bonus content. Today I'm going to give you my review of Dolly Land. And Dolly Land is a film from 2022 directed by Mary Heron, who also directed American Psycho. And the movie takes place in 1973, where a young gallery assistant is drawn to the wild, never-ending party that is artist Salvador Dali's life in New York City. As he helps the aging genius prepare for an important show, he discovers not everything is as it seems. And this movie stars Ben Kingsley as Salvador Dali, Barbara Sakawa as Gala, and Christopher Briney as James, the assistant. And I watched this movie probably close to a month ago now, so my thoughts aren't as fresh. I did jot down some bullet points because I knew I would want to do a review for the season of this movie. And so these are kind of my slightly distant, removed from watching the film, Thoughts. If you want to watch the movie yourself, you can rent it right now. It's on YouTube for, I believe, $4.99 and Apple Music as well for $4.99. And honestly, this movie, it was fun. It was a fun depiction of Dolly. It does a good job of bringing you into Dolly land. They stayed pretty true to his life for the most part. They portrayed it really well. At times, it didn't feel like they tried to cram in more stuff than they needed to for the film. It's like they did all the research. And I'm like, this is good. This is good. This is good. And this is good. Let's just put it all in here. And even sometimes like when I'm watching biopics of someone I've spent the time studying, it's like you can then see the quotes that they've like reappropriated into different areas of their life just because it was a good quote they wanted to use. And that happens a few times here. So not everything needed to be in there. Not everything added to the narrative of the story, but I thought overall, it was still a good depiction of Salvador Dali. And Dali is played by Ben Kingsley. And for being completely truthful... I thought he did all right. He had his moments where like the mannerisms and erraticness that he did were absolutely on point. So I thought he did a physical portrayal of Dolly better than a vocal portrayal of Dolly because I honestly felt like he never fully nailed the accent. And to be fair, the Dolly accent is fucking brutal. It's like a guy who speaks half Spanish, half French. So it's a combined accent with very broken English. So a little leeway should obviously be given to Mr. Kingsley, because again, Dolly's accent and vernacular way of speaking is just horrendous. That being said, Barbara Sakawa as Gala absolutely nailed it. The resemblance one, just the resemblance between the two is uncanny, and her portrayal is just absolutely spot on. But speaking of Gala, though, I did feel like in this film, they tried to paint her as the villain. Of the movie, that Dolly was just like this kind of weird, unknowing, unwitting old man. I don't think that that was the case. I do think that Dolly was in on it. And whether he had all the details or not, I think is up for debate, but he at least had an idea of what was going on. He wasn't totally oblivious to all the bad things that were happening. They did do a good job of showcasing the fact that their relationship was troubled, that Dolly and Vala did butt heads, things did get physical at times, and they did put that in the film. So I'm glad that that was in there but I think that Dolly being just unknowing and Gala being the true villain behind the scenes isn't entirely accurate. One thing I will say too is that the ending of the movie did feel a little bit rushed and tacked on. Like they weren't exactly sure kind of how to bring it to a close, so they just cobbled something loose together that kind of worked to just hope they would stick the landing, and it didn't really feel like they did that. But that being said, at the same time, I think this movie is the perfect runtime. Had it been any longer, it would have overstayed its welcome. So... I kind of understand the rushed ending because they were trying to keep it a little bit shorter, but it still didn't quite work for me. But at the end of the day, this movie was fun. I enjoyed this movie. This does a really good job of bringing you into Dolly Land in an authentic way. I don't think every single performance absolutely nailed it, but you're not coming to this movie for individual performances. You're here for the whole experience, and if you just give yourself over to the film, you're going to have a good time. If you want a definitive rating from me, I'm going to give it three stars out of five.